Wednesday, November the 11th, 2020. Happy Veterans Day out there to um, all of those who served. And a a big thank you to everyone who is uh, someone who is a family member of of someone who served. Thank you to all the sacrifices that you have made for each and every one of us. And thanks everyone else for tuning in to That's What G Said podcast. Uh, Doing a little early episode this week. I've got a lot going on today is also my mom's birthday happy birthday to Carol and tomorrow can you believe it Thursday November the 12th Milo turns one year old my son one year already so I wanted to make sure I got uh, everything done a little bit early this week so I can hang out with him um, tomorrow and, uh, and and we do some things for him over the next couple days to celebrate one year old can you believe that I'm, I, I'm not even old enough to be able to have a, a one-year-old, am I? I guess I guess I am. Oh, wow, the time is flying, and I can't wait to uh, share some some more photos and uh, and let you all know what we do for uh, for Milo over the next few days. So, on this episode, some of the things that we are going to discuss: the Masters. It is Masters Week, so we are very lucky. On that's what G said to have a great guest joining us from Golf.com. It is the managing editor Josh Burhow, and we talk with Josh. For about a half an hour, real preview of everything going on this week in the Masters, Augusta. We go through how it's going to be different this time of year than normal. And then we probably talk about 20 different golfers and their chances, uh, how they've been leading up to this. And uh, and you know, we talk about some pricing there too. So a real good Masters preview. And we're going to talk uh, NFL Week 10. I'm going to go through the Week 10 slate, and then I'll give you my plays. Recap Breeders' Cup Friday and uh, Breeders' Cup. Recap Breeders' Cup. You see what I did there? Recap Breeders' Cup Friday and Saturday. We'll just kind of go through some of the winners and some thoughts on them moving forward. Stable duel for the week. We're going to talk about the stable duel contest for Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and we'll give you a lot of information for the Thursday, Friday contest, and then tons of, of Thursday and Friday racing I'm going to talk Thursday, Laurel, Woodbine, Golden Gate, Friday, Del Mar, and Woodbine. So plays for both Thursday and Friday. Then we finish it up with Money in the Bank 2011 recap with Andrew Champagne. So yeah, one of those real fun, diverse episodes where we're talking Masters, NFL, Breeders' Cup recap, then horse racing for the weekend, old wrestling, Money in the Bank 2011, and a, a few quick notes to talk about. Um, in the world of sports, but but before we get into some of the quick hits in the world of sports, I had to take a few minutes to uh, pay some respects to Alex Trebek, who passed away at age eighty uh, just a few days ago from pancreatic cancer. Alex Trebek, the host of Jeopardy, and what um, we've all you know watched Jeopardy a ton, I'm sure, and we all know Alex Trebek. This is a, a real sort of meaningful one for me because he was uh, the host for 36 years. I'm 33 years old, so my entire lifetime, Alex Trebek has been on the air as the host of Jeopardy. This is, I, I actually tested online for the show and then had to go in person to where you uh, have the in-person interviews. You do a simulation, all the stuff. So I, I wanted to get on Jeopardy. I tried multiple times. Finally, one time ended up getting there, but never actually made it on the show. Seven o'clock every night was Jeopardy and then Wheel of Fortune following. And this was something I remember with friends. I mean, my grandma loved, that was with my grandma every night, uh, Jeopardy and, and then Wheel of Fortune right after. 
and he was an institution. Just, um, you know, something that we all shared. He was always there. It was a constant. Um, I mean, for me, too, some of my personal favorite things individually, horse racing, wrestling, he showed up in uh, WrestleMania 7 and did some interviews backstage, which were really funny. And he actually owned horses, too. This guy was so well-rounded, smart, but funny, had a good sense of humor, and was very, very kind. It, and you hear the stories and you see how, um, like, what a huge figure he was in, you know, in culture, in, uh, you know, Americana the last 35 years or so. Quick witted, just, you could, knew when it was time to be serious, but when it was time to have fun. And we've all seen clips of, you know, some of the, the great moments, the clues that he read and, some of the, the interactions that he had with contestants. I mean, we've had different things spout from Jeopardy, right? Sports Jeopardy. How about the spoofs on SNL with the celebrity Jeopardy, which is kind of crazy because uh, Alex Trebek and Sean Connery had those, in the characters of Alex Trebek and Sean Connery had those interactions, and they both have recently passed. It, you know, this was... Uh, This one's going to hurt again. 2020 keeps on going. Alex Trebek, someone that we've all loved and and really cherished for a long, long time. And his shoes will be impossible to fill. You'll never, you'll never really fill the shoes of, uh, of Alex Trebek. I've forever wanted to say to Alex, I'd like to make that a true daily double. That was like one of the things in my whole life. I always wanted the opportunity to, uh, to play Jeopardy. And get a chance to make it a true daily double. I always joke that if I would have got on the show, even if it would have been something like that, I have no idea what was going on, like 12th century English poetry, you know, I would have just made it a true daily double so I could say those words. If the clue was uh, an all time great man and one that we will miss, the answer is probably who is Alex Trebek? Always tough to transition when, you know, you have a sad moment and, and get back on to, uh, the, you know, the other news and and the rest of the show. But uh, Alex would have would have wanted us to talk about some sports. He was a huge sports fan, uh, talking a lot of, of uh, do, doing a lot of hockey stuff before he actually got into Jeopardy. And there are some news and notes in some of the big sports right now, and we transition over to the NBA. December 22nd will be the start of the NBA season. This is 40 days away. Can the NBA do this? They're going to have a 72-game schedule, and this has to come together quickly. Here's the here's the dates. This is November 11th when I'm recording this, when, when this is out on Wednesday. November the 18th is the draft. November the 20th, free agency begins. December the 1st, training camp. And then December 22nd, NBA start. And the reason why the NBA had to do this was they had to try to recoup some of the money that they were losing last year. They couldn't have another situation where if they start later, they're going to lose more money again. By starting that week of Christmas, they're able to, financially, it just makes the most sense. Now they have to do a, a good job of, you know, scheduling things to where it's uh, with the Olympics on the back end of the season too. It'll be interesting how they do this. They don't want to 
Listen, you don't want to make it difficult on the teams, your some of your marquee teams and players. I mean, and I like that as a as a Lakers fan, right? You don't want to make it hard on LeBron, but you got to think about this. This is more than LeBron, right? This is more than the Lakers. This is more than the Heat and some of the teams that were just in the finals or in the Final Four. This is about what's best for the league. And there were a lot of teams that didn't even go to the bubble. There were a lot of teams that played in the bubble and then were done. And then there were teams that each round were done. So most of the league has had plenty of time off now. As a Laker fan, I don't love the quick turnaround. I'm a basketball fan. I love that there will have basketball coming up soon. And I think you'll probably see the Lakers take this season now after winning a title a little... I don't want to say less seriously, but they have to be a little bit more cautious with what they do with LeBron and, and Anthony Davis and, and a lot of the and in particular some of their older players, probably a Danny Green and you know any of the vets, they have to be careful and back to backs with extended minutes after a different season. Right? Because here's the thing too. The the NBA bubble, we gotta remember, came after a long time off. So they had time off in between. I'm not necessarily worried about everyone just being tired. It's just the the different time, right? We we've come to see that these athletes, you know, they they get used to routines and schedules. Obviously, everybody's been thrown off schedule in 2020, but will that have an impact? You know, the quick turnaround. Will the younger legs be better? Will that matter at all? Will you know? I heard a different take today on the Laker Film Room podcast that said maybe the Lakers will and the Heat and some of the teams that play deeper will be still sort of in their basketball shape and they didn't really they don't really get out of it and they'll be you know their muscle memory and everything getting back into you know real game shape won't be as difficult for them. It's going to be interesting a completely different uh, NBA season, 72 game schedule starting on December the 22nd. And now keep in mind, this will right now is not going to be in a bubble. There will be traveling. There are record COVID highs all over the place. And it doesn't look like it's going to be slowing down soon. How is that going to impact? We've seen the sports where they've had to travel around in baseball and football. They that did impact some games here and there. What will it be like for a condensed basketball season trying to travel around after they had an incredibly successful bubble season at end of the season in playoffs? And there were almost I think nobody was in the bubble that actually got sick it was only people that had come in that had it and that quarantined and so this will be completely different than what we just saw in the NBA our team's going to be a little more conservative this year with how they build their teams because it's such a quick turnaround and because there's not a lot of time we got the draft and free agency all coming up what are they going to do with trades and then training camp I mean this is all in a three-week span before training camp starts so are you going to have maybe like a, a Maury type GM who says, you know what, maybe this is a year where I go all in and he's going to be in a new uh, situation, obviously. Or do you have some of these GMs who go, this might be a great year where I just go all in. Or do you have people say, you know, this is a still a weird, strange year. I'm going to be a little bit more cautious. Just a ton going to be happening in the NBA over the next six weeks. Between now and six weeks, we're going to be playing basketball and we're going to have the draft free agency training camp, trades, um, and then the start of the NBA on December 22nd. So we will have NBA on Christmas, and that's one of the main reasons they wanted to do it too. They, they know that Christmas Day is such a huge day for them. So we will have, I'm sure, probably that four or five game slate on, uh, on Christmas Day. 
So free agency begins 6 Eastern on Friday, November the 20th That's just two days after the NBA draft And think about all the the big players we've heard trade rumors about just recently Right? Harden, Embiid, Westbrook, CP3, Booker um, The Warriors, what are they going to do with their pick? Paul George and the Clippers, are they going to make any kind of a splash there? Bradley Beal, what's going on with Drummond and Hayward? Those are two players that could move There's going to be a lot happening off the court in the NBA over the next few weeks. If you're a fan, you will enjoy all of the movement, all of the buzz. Let's get into a couple of news uh, items in baseball. So Tony La Russa, who was hired as the White Sox manager, and many said, I cannot believe they they would hire him. Not that he's not a good baseball mind, but he just has not been a coach for so long. You figure he's going to be somewhat out of touch with this younger generation, and it would be harder to relate. Word came out that he was actually charged with a DUI the day before being hired. He got this DUI back in October. Back in February, he was charged in October They knew about this, this wasn't like he was hiding it But the, but we publicly didn't know about it And people were already Questioning the hire before something like this So not Nobody's perfect, we all make mistakes The DUI doesn't mean this guy can't go and become a great manager But this was already a, a move that was raising eyebrows And now one of the first things that we hear Isn't even anything baseball related It's that he had a DUI and he was Apparently being very uh, Trying to Flaunt who he was to the cop Those are some of the quotes that came out I'm a hall of famer um, You know I'm a, I'm a baseball guy and, and trying to you know Show who he was So not the most positive coming out from the The Tony La Russa White Sox Marriage to, uh, to begin Justin Turner had an apology for coming back on the field after the Dodger game And MLB released a statement He was not punished whatsoever This was something I was vocal about as a Dodger fan And I've been somebody who's been very You know, I'm I'm very cautious of everything COVID related I think they, in particular for me I'm someone who's a cancer survivor I have pre-existing conditions I have a brand new son who's going to be a year old I can't chance it If I were to get sick And I could very likely be someone that wouldn't make it I can't put myself in those opportunities So that means I don't go anywhere and really do anything And the few times that I have to If I have to go to the store to pick something up I'm wearing a mask I've got some gloves on I'm staying far away from everyone I'm being as cautious as possible And I'm really doing very little And so I think there are a lot of people out there Whether you're pre-existing conditions or not Because you are also maybe just scared Because there are plenty of people Who have no pre-existing conditions That have had issues with this, right? I, it, I appreciate the apology from Justin Turner um, It still it still rubbed me the wrong way And um, I, I, hopefully we'll get over it eventually um, and, and hopefully it didn't affect anyone but this is something that I, I I just didn't I didn't like at all, and I, I'm actually surprised baseball didn't punish him. I think we've seen this with baseball now. They don't like punishing people because it looks bad on them. If they come out and say, "Oh, we're going to suspend Justin Turner for 20 games to start next year," then everyone's going to go point back to them and say, "How did you let him on the field? Why did you let this happen? How come the results we got the results back late? All this stuff." They turn it on MLB and make them look. Incompetent. So baseball doesn't like punishing people. We've seen with the Astros. We've seen with the Red Sox. So um, now, what made this difficult is Justin Turner is not some anti-mask person. 
He hasn't been someone that was all year saying, oh, this is crap, I don't want to have to wear these masks and baseball, this and that. In fact, he was the opposite of that to start the year. He was one of the Dodgers that told the team and said, hey, look, baseball is going to be, baseball's cracking down on this. We have a, a team that is good enough to win it all. We can't let something happen that we do jeopardize that. So the Dodgers were always really good about Wearing their masks everywhere In the dugout a lot of the time Players who weren't playing That's why this was such a A tough one for me Personally who knows the Dodgers Who I don't know Justin Turner personally But when you're a fan of the team When you're a fan of a team And you hear a lot more interviews with someone And you see them speak And you listen to them you know, a, a lot more um, I, I feel like we kind of had an idea Who Justin Turner was And this was just very out of character That's why the apology came out And uh, hopefully nothing bad came of it And um, we can you know get back to actual baseball stuff And when we think about Justin Turner And him, him doing uh, great stuff on the field for the Dodgers Not the uh, unfortunate uh, incident after the game and, and then the Red Sox Rehired Alex Cora Who they Fired and who they had to right? They, I guess they didn't have to but who they mutually Parted ways with Alex Cora was going to Have a one year had a one year suspension We've now seen The coaches from the Astros and the Red Sox both back in baseball after Being suspended for their year after After cheating It, it I understand you serve Your penalty and you come back and that's, that's Fine it feels a little weird To me that Cora is back with the Red Sox And there are a lot of layers to this, right? First of all, like MLB, how do you let him just come right back to the to that team? And two, Cora was a part of two different cheating episodes, was he? I don't know if the one year was enough. Okay, that's fine. They're going to let him come back. So they do. If you're the Red Sox organization, I understand what you're thinking, right? You're thinking, hey, somebody's going to get him. Why shouldn't we? He's a good baseball coach. He's a good baseball mind. I think all of those things are are correct and accurate. But if you're the Red Sox, you just didn't you, you haven't shown your organization or you haven't shown from your organization to your fans recently that you care about winning. You just let Mookie Betts walk and now you're bringing in back in a guy who's going to signal that oh you really care about winning because this was a guy who would do whatever it takes to win. I don't know, it just doesn't add up Something feels weird about it to me But then on the other side, I can completely understand why the Red Sox did it they, they're gonna, They were looking at this going I don't want a team that we play to be coached by him Because he's a good baseball guy So, just a, again, it just the way baseball handles things in general, right? This leads back to how MLB handles everything And when the punishments are very lax You get repeat offenders, you get people that I guess don't care about The repercussions Yeah this is It's weird I can understand you're a Red Sox fan You probably are happy to have Cora back He's a good coach And if somebody's going to have him Nobody else you know, signed him Go get him I just would have gone a different way If it was me and as a leader of the organization Signaling okay we, We're going in a different direction now We're sort of rebuilding We don't have Mookie We're going to go start with somebody new Um I'm curious what some of you think. Uh, does it bother you with Cora back and uh, and Hinch uh, back in baseball? Is it no big deal? I've seen, I mean, a lot of people said baseball doesn't really care about cheating. It cheating, which you're you're right. So why should these guys get get it more than anybody else? It's just 
Yeah. The, the way baseball is run behind the scenes, just there's a lot of things that need to change. And we'll see. You know, there are big things that are going to happen in the next couple of years between the players and, uh, and the owners, and, and maybe some things will change. We move on. How about USC? USC football. They got to win. I haven't, I haven't really talked a whole lot about college football so far this season because it's been really difficult to, you know, with football going on, with baseball and basketball that were pushed back so late, and USC hadn't played yet. Uh, all the racing stuff, there's only so much I could I could do, uh, honestly. And, and college football was has been the thing that I hadn't been paying a whole lot of attention to recently. And I think a lot of it had to do with something rubbed me a little bit weird about just all the stuff we've been talking about with COVID recently about the college kids playing in the COVID uh, era. And and I know we've seen a lot of studies that the younger kids are not as likely to get sick or, or pass away or have, you know, have issues or I just, we don't really know. Right. And we don't know what this is going to do down the line to players. It doesn't, I don't feel as weird about it with the pro athletes that are making a ton of money. And it seems like every, all of the pro bubble type setups and the setups that we've seen in the NFL watching hard knocks and how the Rams and the chargers had to have everything set up. They're actually in better shape than just being out in the real world. The pros are, I don't know if every college has the opportunity to do that. And we've seen how many cancellations every week. It's just, you don't know who's playing. You don't know which games are being played. You don't know how many players, if a team's going to be able to field. So it's been sort of difficult to, um, to, from a week to week thing, I didn't really want to preview stuff because there were a lot of things that we'd preview on Wednesday and Thursday. And by Saturday, those games aren't played. A lot of those players are out and it's a completely different scenario than, than what we mapped out. So what I'll try to do is we'll see and like for for USC games and stuff, I'll maybe recap games afterwards instead of previewing them before. And then maybe just talk a little bit about what to look forward to next week. Um, USC looks super lackluster. 9 a.m. start Pacific time, noon Eastern. They were down 27 to 14 with four minutes and 28 seconds left. So they're down, they were down uh, 17, 14 at halftime. Looked like they were going to be shut out in the second half. They had four turnovers. They had three turnovers on downs. 428 left. They have to go 80 yards, score a touchdown. On that drive, they get a fourth and 13, and they score a touchdown with two minutes and 52 seconds left. Then they do. They get an onside kick. They kick an onside kick and recover it. They pick up a fourth and nine, and they score a 21-yard touchdown with a minute and 20 left. Then they they have to stop ASU because they're only up 28-27, and ASU starts at the 35-yard line, and they only need a field goal. So, a crazy game. I was tweeting out, oh, typical again. But it, it is typical, right? It's not the... It's not the result as much unless you're winning it all, right? If you're winning it all, it doesn't matter how you win. But if you're if you're not looking good and winning a lot some of your games, especially against inferior opponents, it tells more of a tale. And we'll see. Hopefully this team can improve a little bit. Hopefully they don't look as sloppy. They don't really tackle well. They turn the ball over. And those are things that have to do with how you practice. And maybe we can give them a little bit of credit for this year with all the COVID stuff and and not as a normal practice regiment. I think now you gotta, you know, 
you have to practice harder. They have to do things. It's this has been. It'd be different if this was the first time this happened in this game. This is what happens every year with them, and we just don't know if the staff is really preparing this team um, to win games. So far, we've had this weekend Alabama, LSU canceled, Texas A&M uh, canceled their game, Cal ASU. They're not sure. Memphis Navy um, postponed all of those games that have been postponed. It looks like USC is going to be playing though on Saturday at three thirty Eastern time. They are a big favorite at Arizona. It's a 14, 14 and a half point spread there. USC will try to go to 2-0 on the early season. All of you sports fans will love Thrive Fantasy. Download the app right now, Thrive Fantasy. It is daily fantasy sports with a little different twist. It's, a, it's about prop betting. So you're going to be building your lineup based on a set of props where you're going to pick over or under on those given props. And Thrive Fantasy, when you use the promo code G-I-N-O, you will receive an instant bonus. If you deposit anywhere from 20 up to 50, you get whatever you deposit right back instantly. You deposit 20, 20 right back. Deposit 50, you get 50 right back. Use that promo code G-I-N-O. They have major contests for the NFL, baseball, uh, basketball, golf, League of Legends, head-to-heads, Free roll contest, contests you can play in from as little as a dollar anywhere up to a thousand. The big contests they have each week are generally in the twenty to twenty-five dollar range. And this week, not only are the normal NFL contests going to be huge, the NFL Week Ten ones, but you also get a Masters lineup starting on Thursday, a Thursday only contest. It's twenty-five dollars to enter with ten thousand dollars in prizes, over two thousand two hundred dollars to the first place winner. Second place gets you twelve hundred seven fifty to third, all the way on down. Pays out basically your top hundred there, and there are uh, four hundred and sixty available entries in that contest. You have NFL contests each week. You have contest for Thursday, then you have the big one for Sunday. You've got Monday contest individually, and those big contests, $25 entries, you get around $12,000 or so in prizes, and they have about 500 entries or so. First place last week was $2,750. You're going to pick 10 out of 20 options for props. You're picking over-unders. They also have touchdowns only. You can play in contests that are just like this, but they're just for smaller amounts of money where it's $2 to enter or $5 to enter, and you're just playing for a little bit less in prizes. So Thrive Fantasy, promo code G-I-N-O. It'll get you that instant bonus. It also makes me look good with a few of my sponsors, and it puts a couple dollars right back in my pocket. Thrive Fantasy, download it, check it out. Great opportunity with the uh, Masters coming up this week. They're going to have games for you all throughout the weekend. And then every NFL week, tons and tons there. NFL, MLB, NBA, golf, you name it. They've got it at Thrive Fantasy. Don't forget promo code G-I-N-O. Well, it is a big week in golf. It is the Masters. And uh, we're very lucky to have Josh Burhau join us this week to preview the Masters from golf.com. Josh talks Masters. We spend some time going through the the setup, the layout, how it's going to be different this year. And then we start going uh, player by player. We, we talk about maybe 20, 25 different golfers and uh, some of their odds and their opportunities and how things have been going for them heading into the Masters. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Kickback golf fans, a big week heading up. Oh, the crazy year of 2020 keeps rolling on because uh, it is November and we are coming up on the Masters. It is Masters week in November, and we don't get an opportunity to talk a 
ton of golf uh, on that's what G said podcast. It worked out so well with the timing this year and with it really feels like there's a buzz in the air for the Masters. We're going to have joining us the managing editor over at uh, golf.com, Josh Burhow. And Josh, before we even get into the Masters um, and particularly everything going on this week, and I really got to say, anyone that's a golf fan in general or anyone who's looking preview for the Masters, golf.com, I mean, you've got Everything over there you've got analytics Articles you've got stories You've got history you've got Opinion pieces you've got all sorts of Gambling stuff where everybody gives their opinions On everyone's prices I mean this Is basically like your one stop <laughs> shop For everything you need as far as like Golf news analysis Gambling it is it's great Yeah well thank you very much yeah we uh, I think us just like a lot of other You know media brands and you know I guess Any brand you're essentially every year you're trying To do more 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 and this is this is our Super Bowl, obviously majors. We always kind of uh, kick it up a notch with the Masters, especially with the November one. Um, you know, you you never know. I mean, you might get a little, a few more fans in November than in April Masters, just because you have people who are, you know, maybe whatever they're looking for that time of year isn't around. And oh, there's a golf tournament on now. I'm going to watch it. So um, we're always trying to get that casual fan too. But yeah, we have we have a lot of stuff for whatever you're looking for. Big week coming up in uh, just a different week. That's the the conversation that it, you know. I think all all of these interviews and all the previews that you read out there are starting with. We're going to be in Augusta in November, not April. So some things the course will be a little longer, a little softer, apparently cooler. But the weather still seems to be pretty similar. It seems like there's some rain now coming in early in the week and supposed to be later in the week. So going to give us the overall scene of what the course you think will be like and what it will, how it will be different. Over Overall, playing it this time of the year. Yeah, so I think though I think you're right there. We're gonna have rain. I think the next couple of days should make it a little softer. But I think the weekend um, will have a little nicer weather. And it doesn't look like we're gonna get the cold temps that you know we were hoping we didn't get several months ago. So that's good. But um, I've been down there the past four years. And I'm not there this year. But from everything I've heard, I mean, it looks exactly like you know what a typical Masters would look like in April. Um, those guys down there. Uh, the green jackets, they can set that course up however they want. They have the sub air system that's under all their greens. And I think some specific spots in the fairways where they can pretty much suck out, you know, air overnight if they or suck out water overnight if they want and make the greens at whatever speed they want. So I think the big difference what we're going to see and what guys have been talking about this year um, or this week, and this is going to get kind of nerdy, but essentially some of the grass around the greens. So yeah, uh, not to get too inside baseball, but Augusta is essentially Bermuda grass um, everywhere except their greens, which is what you have for a lot of courses in the South. And you get to like September-ish and a lot of those courses then overseed with ryegrass, which is better for the winter. And that all of a sudden um, is what you see in April, what a typical April Masters is playing on that ryegrass. But now it's November and that Bermuda still hasn't completely died off yet. So you're seeing a little bit of that mixed in. It's like poking through. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, so the guys are essentially saying it's just a little more spongy in some places around the greens. Um, it's you not know, you sitting get, quite as much or right. right it's yeah. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. It kind of depends where you are. So if you get for guys, I mean, guys like us, you know, pretty much any 90% of golfers who are going to go there, it's not going to make one bit of difference. But for these guys where every shot is important, where hitting it on the correct groove is important and where, you know, bump and run versus a flop shot versus uh, a wedge or different kind of wedge. I mean, that all matters a lot to these guys. So they're just going to have to figure out which ways to play those shots. Um, if they get a little bit of a trickier lie and 
what they're allowed to do with the ball. Sometimes they might not be able to get as aggressive or as creative, but that's kind of the that's kind of the big change you're going to see with the course, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a lot on Thursday or Friday on the broadcast. And um, it could be could be a decent sized storyline. It could be nothing at all. So we'll we'll find out. And, and what is also a little bit intriguing too is you know just as a from historical standpoint, when you look back at things that happened in previous Masters or in previous years. This has got to be a little bit different just based on the timing. You know, we're so much later in the year now. So when you're look when you're talking about things like uh, maybe experience or players that never won a master or things like that, I wonder if some of those historical factors may not hold as true here with a later version of the Masters where for example, you have some good young players who might have a little more experience under their belt because they've already got a major or two under them whereas in a in a previous Masters that might not have been the case. Yeah, and I think that plays out a couple ways. I mean, the the, the, the no fans there is definitely an element mm-hmm. to it. Uh, Colin Marikawa, who won the PGA Championship at uh, in San Francisco a few months ago, you know that was the first major without fans. And some people have said, you know, as good of a player as Colin is, and is you know he's gonna he's gonna be a future star in this game, no doubt. But a lot of people have said, well, what does he do if there's fans on that course? I mean, you really can't you really can't anticipate that pressure of of tens of thousands of fans breathing down your neck when you're trying to close out a major. So that's the same thing this, uh, this year. Now, is that going to give you go down to Amen Corner, one of the most strenuous stretches in golf, and you've never been to a Masters before, you've never com- really contended before, are you going to feel less pressure than normal without those fans behind you, without the roars? Um, you know, Augusta, they don't have the scoreboards everywhere. Um, they have, you know, a handful up that are manually, that are, that are manually um, functional by just guys behind the scoreboards. And that's like every three, four holes, I think they have them. Um, so you, you really have to go by the roars to hear, to kind of understand who's leading, who made a putt, and do your best that way to kind of figure out where you stand. And it's going to be quiet now. You're not going to be able to hear those. Yeah. So there's a lot of ways that it's going it's to, it's going to be interesting to see who it really benefits and who it doesn't. And before we start at the top with Bryson and, and sort of go down, just because you, you mentioned it right there, I wanted to piggyback a point of, of yours you just made, because actually this was something that I read on golf.com that when you talked about some of the players who felt more comfortable with no fans, one of them that repeatedly came up, in fact, he actually said it himself was Jason Day. That he sort of likes the experience there And that it's just it's something that I think we're going to really have to monitor throughout the week Because it feels like some Want just like what you said They they want that crowd They get they they get up more from the, the roar of the crowd and, it, and, and a big shot And then the crowd roars and it kind of picks them up And it lifts them to the, the, the second half Or the next couple holes And it'll be interesting like you said Maybe somebody that has a bad shot that's a little more cerebral That gets inside their head Are they going to be able to bounce back as much when they're Starting to think so you know someone like Jason Day Who's a big price I think he's like plus 5,000 He might be just an interesting one to throw a few Bucks on for that reason that he said Hey you know what I feel really comfortable in this Atmosphere yeah and it really Depends on the guy I mean it's we all Have different mentalities and different personalities So some of these guys like Tiger You know he really feeds off that energy I think Mm -hmm. Patrick Reed's a guy who feeds off that energy Although to be honest Patrick Reed sometimes doesn't get The the negative energy energy. (laughs) He's definitely a guy that feeds off the crowd You know anyway um but uh, you know, Stevie Williams, Tiger's old caddy, he had a he had a piece in our magazine recently, and he basically said that um, you know he doesn't think that it's great for Tiger without fans there, because that because Tiger can feed off the fans, and that's so important for him. And at the same time, I asked I talked to Ricky Fowler yesterday and asked him about having no fans there and how that's going to affect you know coming down the stretch, and he was kind of like, yeah, you know, we're all pros, we've done we've been here before, so he didn't he didn't think it'd be that much of an issue. 
Um, but Ricky also did mention, you know, without fans, one other element is how you play. Um, the course looks so much, it's the course, that property is massive. And without fans, the property just looks so much bigger. Um, you can really see lines a little better on where maybe you can miss or can't miss. And Ricky said, like, on he brought up 13, for example. Um, if guys were laying up on 13, that par 5, they can go way, some of them like to go way right by 14T without fans there because it gives them a nice little pitch into a, uh, certain uh, pins on that green. Well, they never, sometimes they wouldn't figure, they wouldn't do that if there were fans there. Now without fans, that kind of opens that element. So I think he mentioned another hole was two that maybe gives you a different option without fans there. So it's just, there's a lot of different ways this can play out. All the the buzz leading up to the Masters has been about uh, Bryson DeChambeau and uh, a man who's trying to break golf. He is uh, he's trying to hit shots really that no man has ever hit before, and he's very um, he, he's very open about it. He, he's he's out there and he's saying, "This is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get to places on the course and on these courses that nobody else has done, so I can play a different round of golf and a different game of golf than everyone who's come before me." And when you can strike. The ball the way that he does um, he, he actually can can do What he's saying it, with, with his sort of volatility What I thought was kind of interesting he's the betting favorite In here he's right there at you know you, you, well, You'll find him at like plus 700 plus 800 At a lot of spots wherever you're making your wagers But he's also A similar price to miss The cut a plus 700 Plus 800 in that range so um, He's also a golfer that um, he's the favorite to win but When you find him in matchups And in other situations like that You may find other players who are actually favored over him Because he's not necessarily as consistent But is it is it with him that his A game And his ceiling is just that much higher? Yeah, I think you know, I think I think him, I think Rory and Dustin Are also these under the same category That when they're on They're really just, they have that second gear and specifically Bryson, I think it's also just everyone's so interested in what he's going to do here. Um, it was, you know, it was almost a year ago now. I think it was last fall when he was basically saying, like, I'm going to get I'm going to get bigger. I'm going to hit the ball farther. And everyone's kind of like, oh, OK, I'm sure. Yeah, that's great. You yeah, know, figured yeah. maybe he put 10 pounds on and maybe hit the ball five, 10 yards farther. And he's, you know, went above and beyond that. And he's actually and he's won tournaments. He won the Rocket Mortgage Classic and then he won the U.S. Open. And all of a sudden, it's okay. This is actually working. And then I think people realize that, like, wow, he wasn't lying. And you know, Tiger kind of broke the mold for Augusta in '97 when he won. And I think people are kind of thinking, is this what's going to happen with Bryson now? And there is, you know, there's been some reports of what he's done down there this week already. Just some of the some of the routes he's taking, some of the angles he's taking, some of the short irons he has in the greens. Um, it's it's just unbelievable. So I think people are really I think all eyes are going to be on him on Thursday. I know Tiger's the defending champion. There's a lot of other good storylines, but I think really when your main storylines will be Bryson and, you know, will he live up to the hype of what everyone's saying he's doing there? Now, the one thing about Augusta is you got to putt well to win there. I mean, you got to putt well everywhere, but Augusta, that's always kind of been the key there. And he hasn't really necessarily done that at Augusta yet. So and it's an easy place to three putt um, several greens. So uh, well, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what, if it all clicks for Bryson, that's for sure. It looks like after Bryson in the wagering and sort of in, in just like the, the eyes of many, the next tier is like Dustin Johnson, John Rom, Justin Thomas, and probably Rory. But Rory's kind of flying under the, the radar. I haven't really heard too much buzz about Rory. Those sort of feel like the next tier of uh, as far as in the betting and as far as who have a legitimate shot. So of those, like, I guess DJ, let's go DJ and John Rom first. Um, wh- what are your thoughts on some of their chances in here? 
Yeah, I, I think they're both great picks. I mean, Dustin, um, you know, he's surprised he's only won one major so far. Everyone kind of thinks that. He actually just had that positive COVID test, but he played last week, and I think he was solo second, so he's obviously in good form there. John Rahm is a guy I really like. He's, um, I think we'll get to my pick to win here in a minute, but I, John Rahm would be my number two pick to win. I just, the guy is so good. Um, his game works, his game works so well for Augusta and just translates well there. I, I think people are just assuming that he's bound to win several green jackets, just a matter of time. Um, you know, he's actually had some really good mojo already this week. He had a hole in one, I believe on Monday. And then he had one yesterday. He skipped one across the pond on 16, which is what guys do a lot when the fans are there and they kind of cheer for them to do it. And he skipped it across and somehow made a hole in one there, which is unbelievable. Um, if any of your listeners haven't seen that, they need to Google that and watch it right away. But you did know, you have that on your Twitter? Uh, yeah, yeah. I retweeted yeah, yeah. I saw that yeah. on there. Yeah. I'll retweet that too. That was great. Yeah. yeah. Bizarre. So um, he's a guy where, you know, his, his game just works so well for Augusta and he, he gets, he really does play well in the big tournaments and he hasn't won a major yet, but I mean, he's, I think it's really a matter of time for him uh, more than a lot of people. Ooh, and that next tier would be uh, Justin Thomas and then uh, and then Rory. They're going to be both around uh, the plus mm-hmm. 1,000 into plus 1,200 range. And I think uh, it, it was JT your guy, this one? Justin Thomas is my guy. So um, he's got one major under his belt, but I think he's just – his game is just way too good to never win a Masters title. I mean – his game really fits well here. He's one of the best ball strikers on tour. Um, last four, he's played the Masters four times. Last four years, 39th, 22nd, 17th, 12th. So he's obviously trending in the right direction. Um, he's ranked second in greens hit at Augusta the last two years. It's just it's the same kind of thing with Bryson there. He's just got to putt better. But putting uh, with anything, putting is just it's just, it's it's streaky, right? It's more streaky than any part of golf. And if you get hot, you get hot. And I just feel like he's the guy where it's bound to happen sometime. He's trending in the right direction. And I, he's, he's kind of a guy like Rory where he plays a little better in some, some of these wet conditions. So if we're going to have wet course on Thursday and Friday, I think he can take advantage of it. So that's why I'm liking Justin Thomas. Uh, you know, we mentioned, as for Rory, we mentioned earlier how the November date will change things up. Well, you know, some of these guys who've been a little snake bitten in the past, like Rory, who's been trying to win the Grand Slam, though, or slam there for five, six years now, may, this is kind of maybe the change-up he needs. Um, you know, there's you could make the argument that he's a father now and maybe, you know, he's he's putting this in context and stuff. You know, I don't honestly I don't buy that as much. I feel like if, you know, you're a golfer, you're a golfer, whether you ever you're a dad, you're not a dad. I don't think that's going to make too big of a difference. So um, maybe I mean, it's a nice storyline. He's going to be a little more tired, maybe. I mean, yeah, yeah, he's, <laughs> yeah. He's definitely he might be more tired. So maybe it's actually going to work against him. But but I, I just think maybe like. You know, these subtle changes, like a new day, no fans, whatever. Maybe that's kind of the, the change these guys need to kind of, um, who've been snakebitten in the past, just to get out of their, get out of their snakebitten form at Augusta and maybe find that, you know, that form they've really, they really needed to win. And maybe that's kind of what Roy needs this year. Kind of a change of pace, weird year, weird season. Uh, maybe it works in someone like his favorite. One man who uh, I, I love uh, and, and he is When he's healthy and he's good He is as good as anyone And the the real concern is That we don't really know how healthy he is He missed two months with a knee injury And a torn labrum in his left hip 
since then though I believe he's uh, tied for 28th And tied for 5th Formerly the number 1 player in the world He was the runner up at last year's Masters And he tells you he's feeling good And when he's going good He's going to tell you as much as anyone That he's going good And, and his his uh, like moxie out there is just uh, is great I love Brooks Kepka. How How do you think he's going to fare And how healthy is he right now? You know, I think the knee is always going to be a little bit of an issue for him, but he played well last week. Um, he, he did say in his press conference this week that he probably didn't handle the injury right. So maybe, that, you know, that's he's kind of paying for that. But he's getting better. He obviously played well last week. Um, tied for second last year. A lot of people forget. Like, yeah. There were some really big Nate. Tiger won last year, sure. But you had Dustin Johnson. You had uh, Patrick Cantley, you had Brooks Kepka, you had Xander Schauffele. You had these big name guys play really well, so they were they were sniffing the lead the whole time there. But uh, one person that your readers or your listeners need to follow if they don't already is Justin Ray. He's a golf kind of a golf stats guru, but he tweeted a few days ago that um, just to put what Brooks has done in majors in perspective, um, in relation to par at majors since 2016, Brooks Kepka is 73 under. The next best wow. is Dustin Johnson at 14 under. Wow. That's, that's 59 <laughs> strokes better. That is so crazy. anytime you want to write Brooks Kepka off at a major, uh, for a major, you need to think twice about that because the guy just, for whatever reason, he gets up for major tournaments. So um, always a safe bet for him major weeks. Um, he knows the course well, played well there last year. And I think that's also maybe a good segue into, you know, just Masters favorites or Masters winners of past years. I mean, yeah. what Augusta does really well is, the cream always rises to the top. You rarely get that, like, who, who is that guy that just won, right? Um, the last 10 winners have all been really big-name guys. I mean, you look at, out of those 10, I think Charles Schwartzel in 2011 and Danny Will 2016 um, probably weren't, you know, household names for your casual golf fan, but they were still top 30 players in the world. So what, the, what Augusta does really well is identify the best players in the world and rewards them. So... If you sometimes you feel kind of cheesy picking favorites to win every week, but when you do that at the Masters, you usually get. It's not like the Open. Yeah, it's different. It's yeah, not like yeah. the other ones where where you feel like someone can legitimately there there can be a real upset run. This is sort of like a, a humbling course, and and it's a humbling group of ninety two players that you're playing with. Also, um, and and it's amazing that we've talked almost twenty minutes and we haven't really talked about Tiger <laughs> that yeah, all right, that much. Right. But uh, it, I I think it, what it does is it shows you how good. This group of golfers is towards the top Because there aren't, like you said, there are legitimately 10 to 12 in here That feel like, oh yeah, I mean That wouldn't be any surprise at all, whatsoever If they won, like that's one of the best golfers In the world, and it shows you With the betting odds, because normally even, Even now Tiger is always going to be shorter than he should be because of the Tiger Woods name. And right now, he's not a top ten choice anywhere. You're gonna you can find him like from from th- plus thirty five hundred about you know to even up to five thousand some some different places. And you know Tiger had that great great twenty nineteen win where he came back. But the thing that's that's crazy about that is that's already a year and a half ago. Too, you know, we're not talking right. just about a year ago, like a normal. Oh yeah, that was last year in the Masters. Then you put the whole extra half of a year in there. He really hasn't played all that much since then. So, I mean, he, he's he's not getting younger. Does he have any shot in here? Yeah, and you have to remember too, in Tiger ages, it it's aging a lot faster than your normal forty-four year old. With you know, with the surgeries he had, uh, with the, the mileage, he had to deal with. yeah, that just. I mean, I can't imagine what that guy's body has gone through. We don't even know about, you know, there's yeah. some things we probably don't even know about. But I think um, 
you know, you never want to write Tiger off, but the the putting hasn't been great. He hasn't played a lot lately. When he has played, it hasn't been that strong a play. Um, we're about a year removed from his last win now. And, um, you know, I just, I don't think it's going to be his year this year. The one, the one thing about Augusta though, is it's, there's some sort of tonic there with guys. I mean, right. If you, you play well there in the past, you're always going to play there. We see mm-hmm. Bernhard Longer has always played well there. Freddie couples have always, he's always played well there, you know, well into forties, fifties, uh, longer than sixties now. So those guys, if, if you know that course, you know that course and it's not changing it. I mean, it's not changing every year. It's not like you're going to go to a U.S. Open one year at Oakmont and the next year, um, you know, Shinnecock Hills. Like you're going to Augusta every year. You're going to that same course that you have all these, you know, positive vibes from. You remember you remember the greens, you know how to putt the greens, you know where to miss. And that also brings these other guys into it. Like, you know, Jordan Spieth and Phil Mickelson, for example, uh, haven't had the great last last couple of years. They haven't been that great. Phil has had some success in the Champions Tour. But on the PGA Tour, both those guys have struggled a little bit. Well, you know, look at the results at Augusta. They're all they're both been right there the last few years. Not maybe in contention, but good, strong, solid finishes where they're in the hunt a little bit. So you can if you have good success at Augusta, if you have, you know, some fond memories of that course, if you have some good memories to draw to draw back on, you can put some scores together there and you can get in the mix just like that. So as mu- as easy it is to say, you know, Tiger's forms probably isn't there. You never know when you get on property. Trying to win his uh, his sixth there with uh, thirteen top six finishes since nineteen ninety seven. It's just insane when you read through yeah. some of Tiger's stats. Yeah. Like you you forget when uh when you when you go back and look. Okay, before I let you go, I just want to get uh, a few of these quick hitters for you. You give me a few thoughts on each one, um, and uh, we'll start off with someone who you mentioned. I mean, probably one of the better play, uh, players in the world not to win a major. Uh, Shoffley Xander, can he get the job done in this big one? Um, he'll be top 10. I mean, you, you basically can't rule the guy out for having a strong finish at a major. I mean, major championships, he's kind of like a mini version of Brooks Kafka. He's just always right there. He's so, so solid. And I don't think he wins this week, but he's, I mean, if you're looking for like a top 10, top 20 bet, like, I mean, he's, he's gotta be almost a lock. Let's put the, uh, the young kids together in a package. You mentioned Morikawa, 23 years old. And then what about uh, Matthew Wolf, who's only 21 years old? He's going to be making his first start at Augusta, but he's been top five in his first two majors of the two young kids. Uh, do you li- who do you like better? Do you prefer either one? And do you think either of them have a realistic shot? I don't know if either have a realistic shot just because I feel like you get, your, you get more of your veterans that rise to the top at Augusta every year. But I do think they're, you know, they're certainly capable of some strong finishes. I, I like, I think both should do pretty well. I like Marakawa to have a better finish. He's, you know, he's, he's a really strong iron player, just like Justin Thomas is. People just rave about, you know, his, uh, his ball striking. That's what you need to do well at Augusta. I think that'll put him in a good position there. Matt Wolf, you could argue, is going to hit the ball farther, is going to be able to have shorter, shorter clubs into greens. But I think Colin's probably the guy I'd pick out of those two. Couple more to ask you about Patrick Reed, the 2018 champ. Uh, he's had four top tens since the restart, and uh, and maybe someone that's been a little bit off the radar who uh, played well last year, um, who was tied for fifth, was Webb Simpson, who's been super consistent. Who isn't someone that a lot of people would probably go out and and, and bet, but that was their two, uh, 2012 U.S. Open champ, and and someone who's played well here. Um, Reed Simpson, either of those guys, do you give a shot? Um, I think so. I give. As weird as it sounds, I would be, I'd give Patrick Reed more of a chance to win, but Webb Simpson a more, a better chance to have just a solid top 10, top sure. 15 finish. You sure, know? sure. Um, 
Patrick is so streaky and, you know, he, he really thrives off the crowds. And the thing is like, he, you know, he gets a lot of negative, uh, he gets a lot of negative reaction from the crowds too. Um, he, he probably likes it. You know I mean? That probably yeah. helps him. He it's loves like a heel in wrestling, you know, you, right. you yeah. get a, you get a bu- yeah, buzz off of it for sure. Um, so, so in yeah, a that... way, in a way this could, I mean, even though he might get, you know, more negative feedback than positive, uh, with fans in the course, like it might hurt Patrick not having any fans there just cause he can feed off that so well. And Webb, Webb is just in a way he's kind of like Xander. I mean, they're just, he's just such a steady player. He's had, um, he's been to Augusta a bunch of times now. He knows that place. Well, uh, I think he's going to be right up there too. I, I, and I did a couple leagues. I've picked him as kind of a lock guy. So I think it's pretty safe bet. Two or three more to ask you about uh, Bubba Bubba Watson. He's a two-time winner, and uh, he is up in the three, the plus three thousand range. You can find him places from like plus twenty-five hundred all the way up to plus thirty-three hundred. Another big hitter, and he does have a couple recent top tens. Is he kind of rounding into form for another good effort here? You know, he really might be. He's kind of falling under that same category as like Jordan Spieth and Phil Mickelson, where they can kind of just find that form when they get back to Augusta. And, you know, Augusta rewards players who are creative, who are shot makers. You know, that's going to be interesting around the greens, as we talked earlier about kind of that hybrid grass. You know, what are guys going to be able to do with that now? Uh, Bubba has all the shots. And, you know, that's why he's out. So he's always always going to be in contention there. His putting, his putting has been, his putting last year was just terrible. So that's the only issue with him. But um, if he can find a little something there, uh, I think he'll be okay. I'm a little nervous about the putting for him, though. And uh, Cantlay is another one who is um, He's working on a new putter and a new putting stroke But he did want, uh, win the Zozo And he had the lead in the final round last year at the Masters Before finishing tied for ninth So uh, Cantlay, does he have a shot? Yeah, he for sure has a shot He's probably, he's a great trivia question Because I think he led last year for like Probably like six, seven minutes or whatever it seemed like That that crazy final round. I think, yeah. he eagled, I think he eagled 15 and maybe briefly got the lead or something, but, but yeah, he's, I mean, he's, I feel like him and Xander are kind of in that same group. Uh, Cantley played well, uh, obviously played well with the Zozo and he's a guy who kind of does everything well. Um, nothing superb, but everything well. And I think the, you know, he's such a subdued guy too, where I think having no fans there is, I mean, I don't think that's going to bother him one way or the other. Um, I do like him a lot this week And uh, we've got to mention uh, Molinari He had a, a heartbreaker last year Any opportunity to to uh, to come right back and, and, and get the job done this year? You know, with his odds I kind of I like him as a long shot Only sure. because, you know, he was right there last year Until that shot into 12 And ever since then, well, shot into 12, shot into 15 And, um, you know He's really been on a kind of a downward spiral since he hasn't played super well since that. And uh, with the odds, I think he's been. I haven't seen what the latest odds are, but what you're what you're seeing with him, I mean, he's definitely worth a he's definitely worth a flyer. Um, Josh, is there anyone uh, that we that we didn't mention, or anyone like that's a huge long shot, or someone maybe they can't win that just keep an eye on that you think they're going to play a little bit better than they uh, than than the people project? Um, I think we we hit on a lot. We hit a lot. I was going to say we. we went one through guy, probably 20, 20 different people okay. top to bottom and uh, I asked you for like 10 to 15 minutes you gave me 30 um yeah this is uh this was awesome and like all of what we discussed here 
times about a million you can find on golf.com it, there was a really fun one where it seems like a lot of the um, a lot of the the different folks who work there have a, a like a, a nice running gambling total uh, yeah. in the game that they're playing and so everyone's got their um their win who's going to finish top 10 some sort of fun real prop bets too so it's really great give us some of the plugs again for anything that you've been working on or anything that you've got coming up uh, in the next few days um I'm just gonna be plugged in the Masters content, just like everyone else. So, I'll be uh, I'll be managing some of our content. I'll be writing some of it. But head to golf.com, read all about it. Where can we find you on social media? Uh, yes, uh, Josh underscore Burhow. Josh Burhow, golf.com. Josh, thank you so much. This was a ton of fun, and uh, I'd love to have you back again for some of the for some of the big ones and, and preview them. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much to Josh Folks don't go anywhere we'll be right back with much more On That's What G Said Hey big thank you to Josh You could tell a really really sharp guy there And you heard all the ways you can follow him On social media follow along at Golf.com Before we move along and start talking about NFL Week 10 we have to talk about One of the the sponsors of That's What G Said Podcast Cindy Carava So the website CindyCarava.com She's a full service realtor Which means she can help you out With anything in, uh, in the field of real estate In the world of real estate Selling, purchasing, leasing This this is stressful Moving, relocating It's it's not fun There are a lot of different factors That you have to worry about She's going to make your life easy She is so kind, so genuine You will absolutely love Cindy Carava She deals with vendors like handymen, painters, landscapers, gardeners that she's personally used. She can put you in touch with them. She can help you get pre-approved for a home loan. She can also connect you with lenders that she's worked closely with, covering all parts of the San Gabriel Valley, North San Diego County, Del Mar, Solana Beach, Rancho Santa Fe. If you need uh, help finding out how much your home is worth, she'll give you a free market analysis of your home's value. You can find her on Facebook, on Instagram, on YouTube, reviews about her on Yelp and Zillow. But the easiest way, the website, cindycarava.com, all of the contact information there, Cindy, C-A-R-A-V-A, cindycarava.com. NFL Week 10, I'm going to go a little quicker than uh, the normal through the NFL because it's just going to be me this week. So I'll roll through all the games, give you totals, spreads, everything, and then give you my plays. It's a little scary because there are a lot of games I like this week. Generally, when you like a ton, it's usually not good. It's it's usually when you just like two or three that they end up being the games that uh, that you have a better feel for. But um, yeah, we'll, we'll check them out and keep in mind always like everything. We play, we're playing the, the numbers Then the spots So if you're looking for a particular number And you lose a bunch of value in that number It's not always smart to, to dive in You know, Even if you're just playing for fun We don't want to just give away money We don't want to give away value Because there are a lot of opportunities There are a lot of games, there are a lot of weeks There are a lot of different sports, a lot of different races Don't feel forced to play each and every game Each and every spot Thursday night game this week Is the Colts At the Titans and the Titans are a two-point favorite in this game. The total right now is around 48 and a half here. This is going to be one of my plays this week. Uh, I like the Colts in here, and I'm looking for plus two, and I'll probably play a little money line in there too. They completely blew that Ravens game last week. You had a Taylor fumble and then a Rivers interception. Those two plays completely changed the game. Baltimore was not playing well early on, and the Colts let them hang around there. Then, then you look on the other side. The Titans... 
They only had 228 total uh, yards in Week 9 versus the Bears. They had a fumble return for a 63-yard touchdown. The Colts' D is number 3 in DVOA. The Titans' offense is number 3 in offensive DVOA. So, something's got to give there. What I like is that the Colts will still be able to move the ball on the Titans. And... They will be able to move the ball up and down And their defense is going to be able to give the Titans A little bit of resistance here So the Titans Don't have the type of team That puts a lot of pressure on you Their front And I, I think Phillip Rivers will be able to have a little more Time back there He's He struggles when you put a lot of pressure on him He can't move around He doesn't have the opportunity to get outside the pocket And, and find someone like he used to He never has been a fleet of foot And now as he's gotten older this team, I don't think, is a team that can exploit one of those weaknesses for the Colts. I just think the Colts are a lot better. I think a couple of their losses are head-scratcher ones when you look back at them, and, and they're they're a decent to, to good team, and I still don't know about Tennessee. I really don't. And So when we're playing the Colts here, one of our plays this week, Colts plus the two, probably a little money line there on the Colts. Eagles, this game is uh, up to about three and a half. They are a three and a half point favorite on the road playing the Giants. This is on Sunday at one o'clock Eastern kickoff. The Eagles are three and four. I didn't give you the trends in the or the I didn't give you the records for the first game. Colts are five and three. Titans are six and two. And uh, Colts are four and four against the spread. The Titans are three and five against the spread so far. It, we, with Eagles Giants, the Eagles are three and four. First place in the division. The Giants are two and seven, or three. Eagles are three, four, and one. Giants are two and seven. Uh, Eagles are three and five against the spread. Giants are six and three against the spread. Eagles coming off the buy in here. The Giants are not playing Washington. They can beat up on Washington. They don't seem to win any other games. This is a stay away for me. No real strong opinion here. And you feel like this is a huge game for Philly to win this and sort of get the try to get the division by the strangle by a stranglehold. Here they can't lose their division games They can really lose all the other games But as long as they win the division games They're going to be in great shape So I feel like Philly's going to play well in here But I don't want to lay three and a half on the road The team I don't trust As they get healthier Philly might be a team Is Philly's a team in situations when they're an underdog I don't mind playing Philly But I don't like playing them um, As a team laying points when you When you have to trust them Washington at Detroit the Lions are a three and a half point favorite in here. Keep an eye on this game. I'm not playing this at all because we don't know what's happening with Stafford. He had a concussion, so it might be Chase Daniel for the Lions. Um, Alex Smith looks like he's going to be starting for Washington. Um, so lots of different things here with the quarterbacks. Washington is what two and six. And Detroit is three and five. Washington's four and four against the spread. Detroit is three and five against the spread here. No play in this one for me. I'll be staying away. Same thing in the in the Jags at the Packers. The Packers are a fourteen. Looks like it's thir- down to thirteen and a half point favorite now. This game, the total has moved down again to fi- it was fifty four and a half to start. It's all the way down to fifty and a half five zero point five. Jacksonville is one and seven. They are three and five against the spread. Packers are six and two. They are six and two against the spread. I think the Packers win this game. I just, I stay away. I hate the Green Bay has not been a favorite like this. I think since 2012, uh, close to a two touchdown favorite at 14. So I generally keep 
keep away from big numbers And I'm usually not laying them If anything I'd be playing uh, the underdog side here But not at 13.5 And and it's just not a game that interests me at all This Browns-Texan game uh, does interest me a little bit here Uh, You can get the Browns Look around, if you can get less than 3 I'd love it, if it was Cleveland minus 2.5 Which were out there earlier in the week It's around 3, I don't really want more than 3.5 I just think this this Browns team is way better Than the Texans It looks like Baker will be playing He, he, he looks like he's off the COVID list You're going to get Nick Chubb back this weekend And af, off of the bye, Kareem Hunt Should be very healthy So you're going to have Baker, Chubb, and Hunt All as healthy as they've been In quite some time it's the Browns off the bye I think because they're coming off a bye And they came into this season Thinking Odell Beckham Jr. was going to be a big part of their offense And now he's not So what they've been able to do now With the bye It gives them an opportunity to incorporate a lot more Things in their offense that have nothing to do with Odell A lot more run heavy stuff in Incorporating other players Building things around some other players That are going to be a bigger part of their offense I think they're going to look a lot smoother Off the bye offensively now, keep in mind, the Browns are a really good running team. They're fifth in the league in rushing yards per game, and a lot of that has been without Chubb. They're fourth in the league in yards per rush. Houston allows the most rushing yards per game, dead last. They are second to last, allowing the most rushing yards per rush. They allow 5.1 yards per rush. If you just hand the ball off twice, that's a... Think about that. First down, hand it off. Second and five, hand it off. You get a first down. You could just do that all the way down the field against Houston. They give up 5.1 yards per rush. This is a bad matchup for Houston. Cleveland has the opportunity now healthy to just run all over this team. And what's scary is that one of Cleveland's weaknesses is their secondary. They're not great against the pass. So you'd think, okay, maybe Houston can can go up and down on them. But this game might have some bad weather. It might be raining. There might be wind. If that's the case, it'll really help the run game for Cleveland even more. Cleveland minus three. Anything around the three, we are uh, anything three or under, we're fine with. But you don't want the you don't want the three and a half. The three is key here in this one with the Browns. We move to Tampa. So Tampa is six and three overall. They just got their doors blown off. The four and five against the spread, and Carolina's three and six, five and four against the spread. This has moved. It opened up at Tampa minus six at Carolina. Now it's down, it went down to four and a half. It's back up to Kara, Tampa minus five. Total in this game is 50 and a half. There will be no McCaffrey in here. This game's a stay away for me in that sense. Carolina plays a lot of tight games. I wouldn't be shocked if Tampa wins this game closely. But the last couple of weeks, and not just the. If, if Tampa hadn't had just gotten blown out by the Saints Saturday, it wouldn't bother me that much. What bothers me is that they didn't look good against the Giants the week before in a game that people, we all assumed, okay, they didn't come out against the Giants and play well because they were looking past the Giants to the Saints game, the big game that they had coming up the next week, and then they lay an egg in that game. So, I'm steering clear of this one. I would lean Carolina if I had to. I wouldn't be shocked if Tampa comes out and just looks incredible after a couple bad performances. So, no play for me there. I'm staying away. 
I'm I'm looking at the Denver at Vegas Raiders game uh, here. I'm, I'm possibly taking the Broncos if if this game for some reason were to float up to six at five. I don't really love it. The Broncos are three and five. They're five and three against the spread. The Raiders are five and three. They are five and three uh, against the spread. Also, and the Raiders have been better than better than expected. They have a couple tight games. They've been involved in a lot of games that could have gone either way. They, they very easily should have lost that game last week. These are the two teams that have both recently been the beneficiary of some of the Chargers' uh, weekly issues. Where Denver came back and did all that damage in the fourth, and then last week it looked like the Chargers were going to beat the Raiders, and they the last plays overturned. They can't get in the end zone. If we can get to six, I'd lean Denver in this one. I'm, I'm going to wait for that, though. I'm not going to feel forced to play it at five. Buffalo at Arizona And Arizona is a two-point favorite in this one The over-under is now up to 56 in here I like the Bills Their weapons were all healthy last week And they looked really good And they had a very aggressive throw all the time Throw early play calling and uh, and scheme set up And I hope they will continue that Because I think they can go up and down on this uh, Arizona team And... Their losses, Buffalo, when you look back at them, they came when their games were sort of up in the air. Remember, it looked like their game was going to get canceled, and then it got moved. They had to play a Tuesday game. They didn't know if they were going to play the Titans. That game, everything got adjusted in their schedule for a few weeks. That's not easy for a team that, in, in football, think about this. You play week one, what do you do? You finish week one, and then you focus for your opponent week two. When you have multiple opponents out there hanging over your head, it's it's difficult and you don't know exactly what's going to happen. I'm willing to give Buffalo a mulligan for you know the poor performance against Tennessee. And sure, okay, Kansas City too, who's probably the best team in football. I like Buffalo here. I think they, they figured it out last week. They looked a lot more like that Buffalo team through the first four weeks of the year when they were humming on offense. So um, I think... This I think this should be a really fun game. These are two good quarterbacks that can run, they'll go up and down. But give me Buffalo in a tight game here. Buffalo plus the two. One of my plays. They uh, they just yeah they just feel like the better team. Questions about Kingsbury in close games. I don't really love his decision making late. And uh, give me the Bills here. We go to the Dolphins versus the Chargers. Um, so. You know, Buffalo is seven and two. It's funny when you think about it. And they're four and five against the spread. Cardinals uh, five and three, five and three against the spread. Chargers at the Dolphins. So the Chargers off of these just disgustingly bad losses over and over. And then you've got the Dolphins coming off of this win streak. Now two is in. They looked great last week. They're the hot team. They're the buzz team. Everybody's going to be on the Miami side. Not me. I'm going the other way here. We're going with the Chargers. Think about. The way they lose games They do it to themselves And in close games I want the Chargers I would love if this floated up to 3 I'm okay with it at 2.5 Here uh, but you know Definitely look around for 3 But take it to 2.5 just in case it doesn't And probably a little Chargers money line here I just don't think the Dolphins are going to be able to Continue it week in week out They're going to come back to life one week This is a good Chargers team It looks like Bosa is going to be back this weekend He's going to be able to wreak a little havoc And put a little pressure on two of their I like the Chargers. Um, you know, Herbert has been just 
great. And the Dolphins have been the beneficiary of some really gift defensive touchdowns over the last few weeks against the Rams and then against Arizona. They've been getting free points. That is not always going to happen. They go for their fifth win in a row. The Chargers have six losses and they're all by less than seven points. They are two and six, but they're five and three against the spread. And Miami is five and three and they are six and two against the spread as we move along to 49ers at the Saints and this one just feels like another stay away for me the poor 49ers have just been decimated by injury this year this game is all the way up to 10 because people just saw New Orleans beat the crap out of Tampa on Sunday night football so everyone's playing New Orleans who wants to play San Francisco if I were to tell you to play a side I would absolutely play the San Francisco side they have more than a dozen starters on IR I just can't back them. As far as the number is concerned, I would have to be on the San Francisco side, but I think New Orleans is, is going to win this game, um, but this is not a game I would bet whatsoever, and the the poor 49ers are due for some good luck. They've just had an unfortunate year after had such a great year last year. Sometimes you just you wonder why it, it balances that way. 49ers are 4-5, four 4-5 and five, four and five against the spread. The Saints are 6-2. and two. They're 3-5 and five, uh, against the spread, though. They had a, a big win last week, though, that, that really helped their division-winning uh, aspirations and their aspirations of securing a number one seed and and uh, making a, a deep playoff run. We get to Seattle at the Rams. This is a big divisional game here, and the Rams are. I got this one at two, and it's looked like it's moving towards Seattle. Now it's at one and a half. Rams as a one and a half point favorite here. Over under currently fifty five and a half. I like the Seattle side in here. Seattle just played really, really poorly last week. It felt like that was a bad spot for them. They're not as great when they travel bar and they have to play early in the morning like that think about seattle to buffalo how far that's a basically as far as you're going to have to go and it was a bad loss last out i'm not going to sugarcoat it but who are the rams and i'm a rams fan i'd love to see the rams win this game and play well i'd love to see the rams win a super bowl have a great year but who is this team they have a good group of wide receivers we really don't know much about their backs golf is inconsistent Their defensive front is pretty good. They have big playmakers on the defensive side of the ball, but they have some holes there too. So I think they're a better than average team, but I don't know how great they are. And they look a little bit better than they should, the Rams. They're a 5-3 team. They're 4-4 against the spread. Their five wins have come against the four teams in the NFC East and the Bears. I don't know how great that resume is. Seattle 6-2, 5-3 against the spread. Russ looked bad last week. That was probably the worst game we've seen from him in a, in a while. And Seattle might be getting back Chris Carson and Carlos Hyde. So they will be a more complete team, no doubt, with those two. They need some help in the backfield. In I'm expecting a much better game from Russ. I think Seattle wins this game here. Seattle will be uh, another one of my plays this week. Let's move along to... Cincinnati at Pittsburgh, um, lots of stuff uh, in this game with Roethlisberger. We're not sure um, his status for this game banged up, and he's been on the COVID list, so um, he, I think he had to quarantine. This game opened at Pittsburgh minus 10. It's moved to Pittsburgh minus 7.5. This one's a real, real stay away from me after moving a few points. Over-under this game is right around uh, 46 right now. Bengals are... 2-5-1, and one. they're 6-2 and two against the spread though, and the Pittsburgh Steelers 8-0 undefeated, 6-2 and two against the spread, coming off that just a 
abysmal showing last week against the Cowboys where they really looked poor, but that was a predictable result, right? They they always do this. They always play bad against the teams that are they play down to the level of their opponent or up to the level of their opponent. I'm going to stay away here. I, I I could see Pittsburgh's defense having a field day with uh, with Joe Burrow. I could also see Burrow moving the ball here. I can't really get a great feel for this one. It's a stay away for me in the Cincinnati Pitt game. Two more left to talk about. We've got the Sunday night and uh, the Monday night football game. Sunday night is going to be Baltimore at New England. Can you believe New England, who should have lost that game to the Jets? They looked horrible uh, on Monday night football, and they are a seven-point underdog at home. Three and five shouldn't even be three and five. Baltimore and they're three and five against the spread. Baltimore six and two, four and two, uh, four and four against the spread. They're Total in this one, Baltimore, a seven-point favorite on the road at New England, over-under in this game, 44. Oof. Could be ugly. They could be mucking it up for both uh, both sides and just trying to force teams to throw the ball and pack in the box. I just can't see New England keeping up with Baltimore. This could be really low-scoring and really ugly, but I, I could not back New England even as a seven-point underdog at home. My, how things have, have changed. But, but how crazy, right? If New England wins this game and then they're four and five, they're sort of right back, in, and this is, would be a big win, they're sort of right back in the mix for a playoff spot. Remember, there are seven playoff spots this year, and the NFL has recently said that if any of these games leading up or canceled in the next few weeks, or because of COVID-related issues, if this, if teams, if important games are missed, there might be an additional playoff spot added. So there could actually be eight teams from each conference in the playoffs this year, which for a total of sixteen. That's something that the league is just going to wait and see if teams are affected. But I do like the fact that they've said that it would it wouldn't be fair to a team that you know, ends up a half game behind out of a playoff spot because they didn't get the chance to play another game. So I like that they said they might give, you know, an opportunity for another team or two to get into the playoffs, which, uh, yeah, in in a crazy year, you have to be able to call an audible and think outside the box a little bit. The Monday night football game is currently Vikings at the Bears, and the Vikings are a two and a half Point favorite on the road over under 44 and a half Vikings are three and five five and three against the spread Bears are five and four five and four against the spread and uh I like the Bears in here I, I two and a half I'm okay with and I I would love it if it gets up to three but the Bears will be able to slow down the Minnesota running game I don't think Cook is going to be able to run all over them like he's been doing to teams recently. And the Bears should be able to, even with their inept offense, they should be able to move the ball against Minnesota a little bit. We saw Chicago come to life late. They were their own worst enemy against Tennessee. They should have, even though this Chicago team started great and they've looked terrible recently, they still should have beat the Saints a few weeks ago. These are the spots where I like the Bears more where they're an underdog at home or an underdog against a t- another team that may not be that good. You, you don't necessarily want to take the Bears when they're a, a big favorite laying points against a bad team. I, I don't like them in that spot. And I don't like them in a t- against a team when they feel like they're you know really overmatched. This feels like a good spot for the Bears to, though, to pick up a victory. I'm going to play the Bears money line. Let's try to get Bears plus three, two and a half I'm okay with. 
So the plays for me this week. The Colts plus the two. The Browns minus the three. The Bills plus the two. Chargers plus the three. Seahawks plus the two. Bears plus the three. Make sure to look for the three. Two and a half I'm okay with there. If you can find a Broncos plus six out there, I would also play that one. NFL Week 10. Holiday season is coming up. A great gift for someone out there. Friends, families, members, loved ones, someone from from work. A candle. And we've got a perfect candle for you. What about a candle from SarahCandles.com? C-E-R-A Candles.com. You use the promo code G-I-N-O. It gets you 10% off of your purchase. These are all natural soy wax candles. So not only are they you know, really good quality candles, they're better for you. They're actually healthier for you, and they were they will burn longer because of that. These are affordable priced candles, 20 plus different options, seasonal scents, you have scent for every mood, time, three different sizes. It's a local small business that loves candles. They just wanted to create the perfect candle for themselves, and they figured, hey, this is something I want to share with everyone else. This is a, a family that I've known for 25 years, and they are bringing you a candle with no toxins, with no carcinogens, with no pollutants. These are handmade, a great holiday gift. They even have instructions for you how to trim the wick, how to put the candle out using the top to make sure you get the perfect burn. Promo code G-I-N-O will get you 10% off. C-E-R-A candles.com. That's the website, sarahcandles.com. Breeders' Cup uh, Friday and Saturday was last uh, weekend. November the 6th, November the 7th. Let's uh, let's recap it real quick. Let's go through what happened on, on Friday and then on Saturday. It's a really impressive performance on Friday in the Nyquist Stakes for two-year-olds from Highly Motivated. He actually earned a 96 buyer speed figure, which I believe was the top speed figure of the day, that day uh, of the winners. So Highly Motivated, a horse to keep an eye on, a very impressive winner in the opener on, uh, on the undercard there on Breeders' Cup Friday. The Breeders' Cup races on... Early, it looked like it, w- it was a racetrack where you wanted to be forwardly placed. It looked like it was a, a speedy racetrack. In the sixth race, the Breeders' Cup races started. We had Golden Pal, who got the win. He uh, will be headed to Royal Ascot. He broke like a shot, number 14, from the outside, cleared over. And then he it was weird. He looked like um, Irad Ortiz really grabbed a hold of him. And he was right, almost back-headed. And then he spurted clear again. It was a weird race, but no doubt about it, a very talented winner there in Golden Pal getting the job done in the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Turf Sprint. Thank you to Brian Aragoni for joining us last week to talk about that one. In the Juvenile Turf, it was Fire at Will who got the victory. Sean Alvarez talked about this race with us. I We were not on Fire at Will at all. He was a 30-to-1 shot who sat a perfect trip, a $62 winner earning a 90 buyer speed figure. Really no excuses for Battleground. He just didn't get going till late. He was your uh, your lukewarm favorite, and he was just good enough for second there. That was the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Turf. In race number eight, it was on Friday, it was the Juvenile Phillies. Day out of the office set the pace, and Vequist was able to sneak up the inside, got a great ride along the rail. 93 buyer speed figure for Vequist in winning, and it looks like Vequist, day out of the office, Girl Daddy, and Simply Ravishing will all be heading to Florida for the winter for the the next few months to figure out what their plans will be for their three-year-old seasons. And Princess Noor, uh, the favorite, was uh, was disappointing. 
just good enough for fifth there as uh, as the favorite in the Phillies. In the juvenile Phillies turf, which was race number nine, Aunt Pearl showed how impressive she was. She wired the field, earning a 91 buyer speed figure, and uh, we got to give it up to Andy Villanueva. Uh, also, a uh, juvenile Phillies that was Ryan Dickey who joined us talking juvenile Phillies. Thank you to Ryan. Andy Villanueva joined us to talk juvenile Phillies turf. He liked Mother Earth a lot, who ran second at 22 to one. So nice call on uh, on that one, Andy. And it looks like Aunt Pearl could be headed to Royal Ascot. She can stretch her speed out. She is really, really quick, and she has that put him away type speed. The current. Favorite for the 2021 Kentucky Derby is Essential Quality. Essential Quality won the Breeders' Cup Juvenile. This was a one of the one of the few horses I liked uh, throughout the week that that won. We had a couple opinions that were good. This one was with Essential Quality, who sat much farther off the pace than expected. Quick fractions as it looked on paper, but he was way out of it, and uh, he earned a 95 buyer speed figure. Jackie's Warrior was impressive in finishing fourth. He was just a little too uh, forwardly placed right next to a really, really quick pace there. It looks like Essential Quality will have two prep races before the Derby in 2021. So he is the current horse to beat when we talk about the three-year-olds for next year. Essential Quality gets the job done in the Breeders' Cup Juvenile. Big thank you to Barry Spears for talking Breeders' Cup Juvenile with us. So those were your Friday Breeders' Cup races. Let's talk about the uh, the Saturday, November 7th races. We don't have to go very far to talk about a real impressive horse in Nashville. And, and what we saw on Saturday was, I don't want to say it bothers me, but these are really big days with good horses we don't need the racetrack to be extraordinarily fast, so we're going to set all these crazy track records. And I'm not saying this as someone who thinks the results were different, right? I think in a lot of cases, the best horses won, and I don't know how much would have really changed. But I do. I don't need to see a track record in every single race, and I don't want... Horses aren't supposed to run this fast, that fast all the time. So I don't know how safe it is for the horses to go an extra second, second and a half faster than some of the fastest horses ever have gone at that on that particular day, at that particular trip and track. Th- that's just me. Now, I don't need to see that. We can see a horse like Nashville earn a 102 buyer speed figure and set a track record, and it doesn't have to be, you know, blowing a track record away and going a little faster than maybe they should. This is a horse who's going to be uh, possible for the Malibu against three-year-olds, or the Cigar Mile on December 5th against Older. If he runs in the Malibu on December the 26th, he could be running against Charlatan. Remember the Baffert's horse from earlier in the year? That could be a cool race. Nashville against Charlatan. Nashville winning the Perryville Stakes in the opener, the uh, the undercard in the opener race one on the undercard of Breeders' Cup Saturday. Uh, let's move along to the start of the Breeders' Cup races on Saturday. Gamine gets the win. She uh, in the Breeders' Cup Philly and Mare Sprint. Big thanks to Scott Shapiro for talking about this one with us. She earned a 110 buyer speed figure. She crushed. She earned a track record. Here's my issue with this. This is the same Gamine who has had on May the 2nd was disqualified for testing positive for a bad substance. And she could be disqualified from her third in the Kentucky Oaks for a medication overage. So we have a horse who's had two incidents this year, might have been disqualified twice, and was running in the Breeders' Cup before we resolved her previous issue. That's my problem. Now, 
if they wait a few weeks and they say, oh, you know what? It was fine. We didn't have to disqualify Gamine. Then, then she, she can run. But the timing of this is weird to me, and that's the problem with racing. I'm not. They do, they do the. It's I was talking about this in base with baseball earlier. Like racing doesn't want to come down with a harsh penalty or make some kind of a a, a really difficult decision, except what they did with Jerry Hollendorfer and a couple people. Um, because they don't want it to look bad on themselves. They don't want them to say, oh, people will look back and say, well, weren't you the one that missed this? Didn't they get all these things by you? So is Gamin an awesome horse? Yep. It's just, it's it's so difficult with um, with this specific filly knowing when she puts up these performances like this and then she's had issues twice. Those those have no, I'm, I'm not that naive to think that they have no help in her performance whatsoever I'm not a vet I don't think these are complete performance enhancing things but I do know that things are are used sometimes to mask stuff um, and and that and that's what bothers me just about this particular horse and in horse racing we have to be a little bit more transparent right because if she hadn't had two issues this year I'm not going to say that with other trainers who have had you go through a lot of trainers and, and nobody has a clean record everyone's going to have things that were Honestly, a mistake, something where they tried to get by, whatever it is. But when it's the same horse multiple times in the same year like this, and they're and they're allowed run in the championship race, and then they went off like that, it just made me feel, I don't know. If we find out in a month or two again that Gamin had another issue, or as a better, I'm gonna feel, feel pretty pissed off and cheated if we lost money against Gamin, because. The, the betters are the ones, right, who always get screwed. We're all, we're always the ones that lose. Is she awesome? Yep. Did Baffert do a really good job with her like he did with Authentic again in, in getting these horses the ability to mature, to relax a little bit? She was able to set off the pace. She's phenomenal. I just don't, I have a hard time, you know, gauging races with her in it. Serengeti Empress was really good and, and she was second. And, um, and that's going to be it for Serengeti Empress. She, uh, that was her final start. In the Breeders' Cup Turf Sprint, thank you to Bill Downs for joining us. We had the first ever international winner of the Breeders' Cup Turf Sprint. Glass Slippers gets the win and earns 104 by your speed figure in doing so. There, Got Stormy was just a, a little bit flat in, uh, in what was a wide-open race. The favorite was 9-2 to two in uh, in that one. It was the Dirt Mile. Joe Christofek joined us to talk about this one. And Nick's Go gets the win, 108 buyer speed figure, another broken track record there. He went sub 22 and he went 44 and 1 to the half mile and just went on. And again, he was probably the best horse. He was probably going to wire this field uh, anyways and run them off their feet, but maybe a little faster than the, than they needed the track to be with this one. And just continuing on on the amazing weekend for Brad Cox, who uh, was able to stack up four Breeders' Cup victories there. The Philly and Mayor Turf, Andrew Champagne and Darren Zocali joined me to talk about this one. Ayudara got the win, and uh, Rushing Fall was just a really, really good second in her final race. Ayudara earned 103 by her speed figure. Pierre Charles Badeau, one of two Breeders' Cup wins on the weekend. Harvey's Little Goy ran third, and Lady Prance a lot ran, uh, ran fourth in there in the Philly and Mayor Turf. Ayudara getting the victory. The sprint, it was Whitmore. The fourth time was the charm. I would have never played Whitmore ever. He was 18 to 1 on the board. It was his fourth 
try at winning the Breeders' Cup Sprint. He was not in good form this year, and he is more of a mid-pack to closing horse. There was no speed on paper. It, it looked like only Yao Pan had speed, and then Yao Pan didn't even go. So it, it, it didn't feel like the type of race that was going to set up for a horse to come from off the pace. Whitmore... Congratulations to the connections. He gets the win in his fourth try and a very deserving winner of the Breeders' Cup Sprint. Very disappointing effort from Yao Pan, who just didn't break and never really showed uh, any of that speed that looked on paper like he was going to have that kind of an advantage. Pierre Charles Boudot with another win, and this one was a shocker. He was aboard Order of Australia, a 73 to 1 shot that ended up paying $148.40 for your $2 to win. Aiden O'Brien ran 1-2-3 in the Breeders' Cup mile. It was the second win of the day for Bordeaux, 105 buyer for Order of Australia. A big thank you to Chris Larmy for joining us to talk about the mile. This was the second highest win payoff ever in Breeders' Cup history. Christina Blacker joined us to talk about the distaff, and she was pretty spot on. She liked Monomoy Girl a little more than Swiss Skydiver, and she thought Valiance was a horse who would uh, be able to hit the board and give you a little value there. Monomoy Girl wins. Valiance second, Dunbar Road third in the distaff. This was the fourth Breeders' Cup win of the weekend for Brad Cox, and Monomoy Girl, a the fourth two-time winner of the Breeders' Cup distaff. She earned 100 by your speed figure, and it looks like she will be returning to the races next year. The Breeders' Cup turf, Andrew Champagne and Darren Zocali, they were doing double duty, so we talked about the Philly and Mare turf, and then the Breeders' Cup turf, and we all liked Tarnawa in this one, who was under just under 5-1. to one. The Euros run 1-2 with Tarnawa and Magical. Channel Maker tried to get out front and wire the field, but was not able to, uh, to hold off the rallies of a couple very strong Euros. Tarnawa with 109 by your speed figure in winning that one. And the Classic went to Authentic. Emily Gullickson joined us to talk about the Classic. I'm I'm just a little surprised at some of the tactics in this race, and we've heard uh, trainer Barkley tag not very happy with what happened with Tis the Law. Tis the Law broke on top in this race. Now, do I think Tis the Law was going to be uh, a horse who tried to set the pace and get in front of Authentic? No, but what happened, Tizalod broke on top in the Derby also. And what he ended up doing is Manny Franco grabs a hold of Tiz the Law to try to take him back and, and settle him. And instead of letting him run, what when you just let him run for a little while, it it, it stretches Authentic out. And it forces Authentic to have to work harder in order to get the lead in order to clear you. Then what it does is it stretches the rest of the field out. So that way... Instead of grabbing a hold of a horse, you can actually just sort of guide your horse to the outside because there aren't bunch. There's not a group of horses bunched up that you have to maneuver in between or get back and get around. So, Barkley Tag was not happy with what happened with Tis the Law. As someone who thought there would be a little more speed on paper, it 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 only frustrated me in that when he broke. I thought he should have pushed him more. I, I was a little more surprised that maximum security wasn't as close up, and uh, and it was it was over pretty pretty early on when Authentic was cruising like that. Improbable tried his best to come and get him, but he just couldn't. So Baffert runs one two with Authentic with Improbable. I needed Improbable for a lot of money to close. I'm a, a little a little frustrated on that one, but ton of respect for Authentic. He's the deserving horse of the year. Your Derby winner, your Breeders' Cup Classic winner. He he was best. He outran them, I would have just liked to see Tis the Law push him a little more early 
or maybe maximum security push him a, a little bit more early. But hey, you know what? He all he did was win the race. That's not he he can't control that. So cannot hold that against authentic. You're deserving horse of the year who earned 109 by your speed figure. Big thank you to everyone who joined us. We had 14 guests to discuss each and every Breeders' Cup race last week. This week, we uh, shift our focus to what's coming up in the world of horse racing, and we've got some major contests at Stable Duel this weekend on Thursday. And we're going to talk about the Thursday Woodbine races right here, the Thursday Laurel races right here following this, the Thursday Golden Gate races right here following this, the Friday Woodbine races right here following this, and the Friday Del Mar races right here following this. We'll give you some thoughts on five contests coming up over the next couple days. So Thursday, Woodbine has a $25 buy-in, top 10 contest. Laurel Park has a $10 buy-in, and Golden Gate has a double-up that's a $25 buy-in. On Friday, the 13th, ooh, how about that? Friday, November the 13th, Laurel Park, $5 buy-in. Woodbine has a $10 triple-up. Del Mar has a top 10 $25 buy-in, and Penn National has a $50 double-up on Saturday, a couple more contests for you. Saturday the 14th, Laurel Park has a $10 double up. Woodbine has a $25 contest. Del Mar has a $5 and then a $50 top 10. So a couple options for your Saturday Del Mar likings. Then on Sunday, two more chances at Del Mar with a $10 buy-in and a $50 triple up. You could also play at Woodbine on Sunday with a $25 buy-in in that Sunday Woodbine contest. So let's start at Laurel Park. On Thursday, if you're playing in some of those stable goal contests, there are a couple horses that you can use in here. And hey, I'm just going to be betting a lot of these horses to win too. So Laurel for me, race number one, I'm going to go to the number seven, Vic's Cool Cat at around five to two. I think if you toss the last race, it was a small field. It was an off race track. So you can get, you can make some excuses for Vic's Cool Cat there. It looks like the one, two, three, and then maybe even the eight and the four will all be showing some speed and be forwardly placed in here. So Vic's Cool Cat, she is drawn well, and she should sit a great trip off the pace. I'm going to make a win wager on her if she is anything over 5-2, to two, and in Stable Duel, she'll cost you $7,000 with her morning line price of 4-1, to one. so make sure you throw her in your Stable Duel lineup on Thursday. In the third race, I'm looking at the number 10 in here, and, and that is Holy Saint. So when Holy Saint last faced a couple of uh, the common rivals that you see in this race, uh, Tauber and um, Seen at the ro- uh, Seven on the Rocks, it was an off track. I think you can just put a line right through that race. This is a horse who's proven at six and a half furlongs. He has some speed, but he can also sit just off the pace if need be. And he's heading into a really hot barn right now who is going to go first off the claim with the number 10, Holy Saint, a barn who really is able to place them super well. Just be the next out winner in that 16 claimer. I just be the next out winner who came back to win a 16 claimer. So the number 10, Holy Saint, I think it's going to get bet down a little bit in here, and that's that's great for um, for Stable Duel because he, he's only a thousand dollars on the morning line. If Holy Saint's anything over five to one, I'm going to make a win wager on the number ten in race number three. We move along to race number five. It is the number eight Sunday in LBC. Who I'm looking at, and hey, I'm in, I'm in I'm in the Long Beach here. So much drama in the LBC. It's kind of hard being Snoop Dio double G, but the number eight. Sunday in LBC in race number five would only cost you $750 in your stable dual lineup. And let's talk about some of the reasons why we like this horse. The price for me, 
is about six to one. Anything over six to one, six to one or over, I'm worthy. Um, I'm ready to make a win wager on Sunday in LBC. She was the runner-up at the level last time out. Two starts back, tried the turf, just put a line right through it. That was a troubled trip on the grass too. Will likely be close up. She showed last time out that while she does have speed and probably wants to be really close to the lead, she can sit and she can pass horses. She fits very well in here. That morning line is way too high. If she gets bet down, that'll get you great value in your stable dual uh, lineup. And anything over anything over five to one on Sunday in LBC will be a play for me on Thursday, Laurel Park. Three plays, three horses to use in your stable dual lineups. The first race, the number seven, Vic's Cool Cat, anything over five to two. The third race, the number ten, Holy Saint, anything over five to one. And the fifth race, the number eight, Sunday in LBC, anything over five to one. On that one, let's move along on Thursday over to Woodbine. Get those past performances out for Woodbine for Thursday, November the 12th, and we don't have to go far. Remember, there's a stable duel contest that we're going to be playing to, to find one of the horses to build your lineup around and to play to win. I'm talking about the number seven, Exceed. If it is anything over five to two, I'm going to make a win wager on him. He will cost you 7000 in your stable duel lineup. The blinkers come off for this guy. He drew the rail last time out, and he was a little slow. Uh, he was up. It was a close sixth. He was inside, and then he was in really tight. He was within a couple lengths. He got shuffled back to last. Bizarre running line, too. He ended up losing three lengths. He angles in between. Then he has to hesitate up the inside. He was no doubt second best, and he had a brutal, brutal trip. That is the number seven, Exceed. Make sure to make a win wager on him. Use him in all of your exotics if he's you know, five to two or so, and he's got to be in your stable dual lineups. We move to race number three. Now we're looking at the number seven uh, again, one more time, and that's Shanghai Bound. She was fifth, kind of a close up fifth, just about three, four lengths off, sitting on the outside. She ended up with a really solid second last time out on September the 24th. That was going seven furlong. She's going to stretch back out, and two starts back, she was a very nice second, going a mile in a 16th. Last time out, she lost to a next out winner, so she's been the runner-up in her two starts for these connections, and this is a great spot for Shanghai Bound. I'm fine spending up a little bit on her. She would be an exotic single for me. Anything over 9 to 5 would offer great value. She would cost you 8000 in your stable dual lineups. We move to race number five for Woodbine on Thursday, and uh, we're looking at the number seven again, seven, seven, seven. We're rolling seven, seven in the first, seven in the third, seven in the fifth. This is threat level midnight, so you fans of The Office and Michael Scott will appreciate this one, uh, Threat the, the name of this horse. Threat level midnight. Debuted going five furlongs on the turf at Monmouth and lost to a next out winner against Maiden Special Weight. Uh, against Maiden Special Weights, came back against Maiden Twenties on the synthetic at Presque Isle, and she had a brutal, brutal trip. Slow start was bumped around and was traveling well on the inside, and then just ran into traffic. Got shuffled, nowhere to go. Had to angle around and then shot up in between horses, but just couldn't get to the leader. The early trouble really cost her, and she had a ton of it. Threat level midnight will be on all of my exotics. Anything around seven to two, I'm going to make a win wager, and this one would be five thousand in your stable dual lineups. We move to race number six at Woodbine on Thursday. 
I'm going to the one this round's mine who should just send hard from the inside, second off the bench. There is no other speed in here at all. I think the plan has to be send hard from the inside. Uh, Wilson was aboard for the last few. I, I knew she showed a little tactical speed. I think they're going to send hard from the rail this round's mine. So four horses at thir- at Woodbine on Thursday we're looking at. These will be horses that are going to be in my stable dual lineups and I will play them based on their odds. If we can get five to two on Exceed, the number seven in race number one. In race number three, the number seven Shanghai Bound. Nine to five or so and we'll try to single that one in Exotics. In the fifth, the number seven Threat Level Midnight. Seven to two is the value line there. And in the sixth race, the number one I probably want to get around four to one or so on this round's more. Uh, this round's mine, who would be five thousand on your stable dual lineups for Woodbine on Thursday. Now there's a, another place you can play a stable dual lineup on Thursday. So we will play a lineup, and we will also play some horses to win. So let's talk about Golden Gate for Thursday. There are three horses that I'm going to be looking at over at Golden Gate. So get your past performances out for Thursday, November the 12th. We're going to head to race number two at Golden Gate on Thursday. And I'm going to be looking at the the number four in here, and that is Homegrown. He had a fine start in his most recent race. That was against a maiden 12s, fives, and it was going a mile. So he sat third. He was inside, he was three lengths off, and he was chasing a a, a nice battle up front. It was actually a perfect trip for him. He didn't really get going until late, though. That was at a mile, and now he's going to cut back to six furlongs. What I like is that we know that he's quick enough to keep up, because he's actually shown some sprint speed. He faded, and he finished fourth in his second start. This field of six has five other runners who have never been beyond five and a half furlongs, and all five of them look like they want to be either right on the lead or really, really close to the lead. I think you have a a bunch of horses in here who don't want to go this far or who this might be a little farther than where they're best, and they're all going to be battling. This race looks like it's going to set up perfectly for the number four, Homegrown. Anything over 5-2, to I'm going to make a win wager on Homegrown. Make sure to use this one in your stable duel contest for 7,000 in your stable duel lineup. In race number four, I'm going to be looking at the number four, Twilight Rider. If we can get around three to one, I'll make a win wager on uh, on Twilight Rider. Would cost you 6500 on your stable dual lineup. Slow start, last time out, was fifth, about five, six lengths off, and moved nicely in between and really started to roll. Angled three wide and went right on by. That was a solid win, and now... That was a first start as a gelding and first time on the Golden Gate Synthetic. Plenty of reason to improve. And this one should have the two inside horses to give him plenty of pace to run at. Loved the uh, effort. First time at Golden Gate coming in from Emerald for Twilight Rider. Anything over 3-1 to one will make a win wager. This one would cost you 6500 on your stable dual lineup. And we move to race number 6. Golden Gate Thursday. I'm looking at the number four in here, Lose Tis Now. I think Lose Tis Now is going to get bet off the morning line. He's six to one. She's six to one. She will cost you five thousand off your stable dual lineup. Doesn't matter how much she gets bet. So she she tried the synthetic last time out, and that that's not what 
I, I think she wants. The The key is is the breeding for this gal. She's, a, she's actually bred very, very nicely. And she's a full bro to Mike's Tiznow, who is a multiple stakes winner. The dam of this one was a five-time winner. And all five of those wins were going long on the turf. So... Lose Tisnow won sprinting on the turf a couple starts back, a good start, but chose to take back, was in fourth, was uh, you know in the two-path, two, three lengths off, got a nice setup, and looks like she'd have no problem with the added distance. And I like that this barn, who's very good first start off the claim, they claim this one, and then he immediately stretch out going long on the grass because that's what the dam did really well. So in the sixth race, the number four, Lose Tisnow, anything around three to one, I'll make a win wager. And those will be the three Golden Gate plays. And those will be some of the uh, the three that I build my stable dual lineups around. In race two, the number four, Homegrown. In race four, the number four, Twilight Rider. And in race six, the number four, Lose Tis Now. Best of luck on Thursday over at Golden Gate. Let's move from Thursday over to Friday. We'll have a couple plays for you at Friday at Woodbine. And then over at Del Mar. Three plays on Friday at Woodbine. Let's go to race number one for the first one. And it's the number seven. I come from downtown. I think seven furlongs on the synthetic is where he's found a a bit of a home. So August the 21st, it was a good effort going a mile and a 16th, moved into contention, and then just got a little bit tired. Then took a shot on the grass going a mile and a 16th and had some trouble that day in what has come back to be a productive race. You can put a, a line right through that. And on October the 11th, they cut this guy back to seven furlongs. He broke the maiden. He did it nicely. I think this is where he fits. The number seven, I come from downtown. Anything around five to one, I'm going to make a win wager. What's great is because of that 10 to 1 morning line, this one will only cost you $1,000 to include in your stable dual lineup for Friday's Woodbine contest. In the third race, I'm going to go to the number 6 in here, Orazio. If you just toss the turf race two starts back, he was one of five next out winners that day, and he was in a tough spot, and he had a ton of trouble that day. He has had a really good, a really solid 2020. Look at the consistency. The last two races on the synthetic, he's won. He hit the board in the three prior races to that. Just a really, really good 2020. I think he's very consistent. I wouldn't be shocked if he takes some money in here. Anything over 7-2. to two, I'm going to make a win wager on the number 6 or Razio. He'd only cost you 5000 in your stable dual lineups. Make sure to throw him in there. In the seventh race, the number three, Summer Load, had a brutal, brutal trip in his debut. He drew the rail. He was off slow. He was eighth of nine. And then he was about five lengths off. He took a while to get going, but he started to, and then he was stuck inside. He was in tight. He got shuffled back. He lost a few lengths. He stayed to the inside. He had a ton of run late, and he just missed second. Now he's going to get Lasix for the first time. And you're going to get a... I wouldn't be shocked if you're a little more aggressive because you're getting a a bug rider here with a five-pound weight allowance. So, Summer Load, the number three. Make sure to make a win wager on Summer Load if he is anything over four to one. He would only cost you 3000 on your stable dual lineups because of that eight to one morning line. So, three horses to to make some wagers on on Woodbine, uh, Woodbine on Friday and, and to use in your stable dual lineups. In the first race, the number seven, I come from downtown, anything around five to one. In the third race, the number six, Orazio, anything around seven to two. And in the seventh, the number three, Summer Load, anything around four to one. 
Friday racing over at Del Mar. Don't forget about that Del Mar Friday stable dual contest. Make sure to throw all these horses in your lineup, and we're going to play them if we can get the odds that we would like. In race number one, I'm looking at the number eight, Mac Daddy 2. Blinkers on today. Debut, he, was, he had a good start on the inside. He was second, and that was going five furlongs on the turf. He tracked a length off. He could never get to the leader, and he ended up holding off three other challengers for second. Tried the dirt last time out. Just got outrun. And he gets outside today. He's back to the turf. He adds some blinkers. I think there are plenty of things to like about the 8 Mac Daddy 2. He would cost you 6000 in your stable dual lineup. 3-1 to one is, is as low as I'd want to go with making a win wager on the number 8 Mac Daddy 2. In race number three, I'm looking at the number nine in here. This could be a real key to your stable dual lineups, and this could be a real key to an early pick five to making a, a little bit of money on Friday. If keep dancing is over six to one, I think that's a great price on this filly who tried the turf last time out for the first time, and she completely missed the break, and she was back to seventh, dead last. She was ten lengths off, and she closed really well. And she just had way too much to do. When you look at her breeding, her dam was 9 for 18 on the grass. She has four siblings that have raced. Three of them are turf winners. And the only one who didn't win on the turf only had one start on the turf. I think Keep Dancing has a lot of upside on the grass. And the trip was better than it looks on paper last time out. Just completely missed the break. Had no shot. If she is over 5-1, to 6-1, to one, that's I'm going to make a win wager. And she will only cost you 750 off your stable dual lineup because of that high morning line. In race number four, the number one princess tail. This is like an exotic single to me. Will probably be one of the shorter prices in this race. And on October the 17th, she dropped in from maiden special weights to maiden claimers. And she made her first start in seven months. And it was going six and a half furlongs on the dirt. She was mid-pack. She was sixth of ten. About six, seven lengths off. And she moved to the inside. She angled around three deep. She got into a nice stride late. She was a wrapped up third. Now you're going to stretch out. Second off the bench, saves all the ground. Princess Tail should be very, very well meant in race number four at Del Mar on Friday. An exotic single and a horse to use in your stable dual lineups would cost you 8000 off your lineup. In race number five, I'm looking at the number eight, Hurley. Hurley is a, a filly who most recently had a slow start from the rail. She was last in a compact field heading into the turn. She was a couple lengths off in a field of six. Then she was in a tight spot. She was inside. She was surrounded on all sides. She had to, she had to back out, and she got steadied. She lost a couple lengths. She had to angle around four lengths wide, chasing lone speed. It was not an easy trip in a small field. I think Hurley will get a much better trip in this spot, talking about the number eight in race number five, Hurley. If we can get around five to two, we'll make a win wager, and this one will cost you seven thousand off your salary cap on your stable dual lineup. Make sure to throw Hurley in your lineups. We move to race number seven. This is a little more of a, a wild card because we have a, a horse just completely taking a shot on the grass for the first time. But Gray Magician has some back class. He's been in some good spots. You can make l- some excuses for him recently, right? Let's his last start. It was he hadn't raced from January to October. I think you can excuse it. And and then in in the Fort Hooper at Gulfstream Park back in January, he was fit that day in a field of 14. He actually did not run poorly at all. The race prior to that, he was in the San Antonio against what may have been a little bit tougher gift box and midcourt. Now he's going to try the grass for the first time. His dam was a multiple winner on the turf. 
was a stakes winner and was graded stakes placed. Pratt jumps aboard. This is the type of horse who you like in your stable duel lineups because he probably is going to get bet down win or lose because of the connections and the turf pedigree, and he's got a little bit of back class. So you'll feel like you're going to get a good run for your money. If he's over 7-2, to two, I'm making a win wager on Gray Magician. He'll only cost you 5000 in your stable duel lineups. So the horses to look at for Friday at Del Mar. The first race, the number 8, Mac Daddy 2, anything around 3-1, to one, we'll make a win wager there. In the third race, the number 9, Keep Dancing, anything around 6-1, to one, we'll make a win wager there. In the fourth, the number 1, Princess Tail, anything, uh, it's probably like an exotic single there. This, this one will probably be around 2-1 to one or so. In the fifth, the number 8, Hurley, if we get over 5-2, to two, we'll make a win wager. And in the seventh, the number 5, Gray Magician, anything over 7-2 to two or so seems fair on Gray Magician. That's your uh, racing for the week. Follow me on social media. Uh, it's me, Gino B, because I, I I put this out early on Wednesday. Some of the racetracks hadn't even had their Saturday entries out. The morning lines and stuff weren't out. So I might be posting either a video or just some plays on, on the Twitter and on Facebook for some Saturday stuff and some stable duel, uh, some Saturday thoughts. So make sure to follow along on social media just in case we do. It's me, Gino B. Horse racing fans, you will love OldSmokeClothing.com It is a website with t-shirts, hats, zip-ups, hoodies, you name it, horse racing swag, horse racing memorabilia, horse racing slogans, catchphrases, names of racetracks, names of horses that we love, OldSmokeClothing.com And when you use the promo code G-I-N-O, it'll get you free shipping on your order. I mean, we're talking t-shirts, hats, zip-ups, quality clothing, hoodie, Tank tops, long sleeves, custom designs. You can get whatever you want on there. You get the chance to show the horse racing fan in you. Check out some special collections like the Kentucky Derby or the Secretariat Collection. They have a clubhouse setup where you will pay to be a member of the clubhouse. It'll gift you opportunities to get discounts anytime you shop. And you're going to get exclusive memorabilia and exclusive items sent to you four different times throughout the year. We'll give you more information on uh, the clubhouse and you can check out more about that at oldsmokeclothing.com. Com. Tis the law, Midnight Bisu, Authentic, She Dares the Devil. Any horses that you're fans of, they have shirts there so you can represent OldSmokeClothing.com. Promo code G-I-N-O gets you free shipping on your order. Up next, it's the Money in the Bank 2011 Old Wrestling Rewatch. It's just Andrew Champagne joining me this week. Darren will be back with us next week. We talk about Money in the Bank 2011, CM Punk, John Cena, the Pipe Bomb, and one of the biggest matches, no joke, in wrestling history and WWE history, and one of the most important matches of the last decade or so. It's the Money in the Bank 2011 Recap with Andrew Champagne. John Cena. While you lay there, hopefully as uncomfortable as you possibly can be I want you to listen to me I want you to digest this Because before I leave in three weeks with your WWE Championship I've got a lot of things I want to get off my chest I don't hate you, John I don't even dislike you I like you I like you a hell of a lot more than I like most people in the back I hate this idea that you're the best Because you're not I'm the best I'm the best in the world There's one thing you're better at me than I am, and, and that's kissing Vince McMahon's ass. You're good at kissing ass. You're good at kissing Vince's ass as Hulk Hogan was. I don't know if you're as good as Dwayne, though. He's a pretty good ass kisser. Always was and still is. Whoops! 
I'm breaking the fourth wall I am the best Wrestler in the world I've been the best ever since day one When I walked into this company And I've been vilified and hated since that day Because Paul Heyman saw something in me That nobody else wanted to admit That's right, I'm a Paul Heyman guy You know who else was a Paul Heyman guy? Brock Lesnar And he split just like I'm splitting But the biggest difference between me and Brock Is I'm going to leave with the WWE Championship I grabbed so many of Vincent K. McMahon's brass rings that it's finally dawned on me that they're just that. They're completely imaginary. The only thing that's real is me and the fact that day in, day out, for almost six years, I have proved to everybody in the world that I am the best on this microphone, in that ring, even in commentary. Nobody can touch me. And no matter how many times I prove it, I'm not on your lovely little collector cups. I'm not on the cover of the program. I'm barely promoted. I don't get to be in movies. I'm certainly not on any crappy show on the USA Network. I'm not on the poster of WrestleMania. I'm not on the the signature that's produced at the start of the show. I'm not on Conan O'Brien. I'm not on Jimmy Fallon. The fact of the matter is, I should be. Trust me, this isn't sour grapes, but the fact that Dwayne is in the main event at WrestleMania next year and I'm not makes me sick. Oh hey, let me get something straight Those of you who are cheering me right now You're just as big a part of me leaving as anybody else Because you're the ones who are sipping on those collector cups right now You're the ones that buy those programs that my face isn't on the cover of And then at 5 in the morning at the airport You try to shove it in my face so you can get an autograph And sell it on eBay because you're too lazy to go get a real job I'm leaving with the WWE Championship on July 17th And hell, who knows, maybe I'll go defend it in New Japan Pro Wrestling Maybe I'll go back to Ring of Honor Hey Colt Cabana, how you doing? The reason I'm leaving is you people Because after I'm gone, you're still going to pour money into this company I'm just a spoke on the wheel The wheel's going to keep turning, and I understand that Vince McMahon's going to make money despite himself He's a millionaire who should be a billionaire You know why he's not a billionaire? Because he surrounds himself with glad-handed, nonsensical, douchebag yes-men Like John Laronitis, who's going to tell him everything he wants to hear And I'd like to think that maybe this company will be better after Vince McMahon is dead But the fact is, it's going to be taken over by his idiotic daughter and his doofus son-in-law and the rest of this stupid family. Let me tell you a personal story about Vince McMahon, All right, We do this anti-bullying campaign, and that was it, Andrew, the pipe bomb. And I know a little long, a little long-winded to start for the old wrestling rewatch, but had to do it because this was one of the bigger promos really in the history of wrestling folks we are going to be talking WWE money in the bank 2011 it's the old wrestling rewatch here on that's what G said Andrew Champagne joins me Darren won't be with us this week he's got a, a family issue but he should be back next week so hope all is well with DZ Andrew we've referenced it we've made you know memes and gifs all over the internet no doubt about it in the last decade but this show is huge That that promo was huge This match that we're going to talk about Between CM Punk and John Cena is huge And we're talking, you know, all time In some of the big, big moments in wrestling history Yeah The promo was Cathartic Money in the Bank was A huge show With a match of the year Maybe even WWE's match of the decade The problems came after, After all of this, up. when right. the summer of punk got ruined by a text message Kevin Nash sent to himself. Trust me, you don't want to research this. You don't want to go down the rabbit hole. None of this makes any sense. And it's as big a part as any of why CM Punk left the WWE a couple of years later when he was still one of the most over guys in the company, despite everything that went down. So... 
taking that sort of diminishes the impact of that promo, in my opinion. But going back to 2011, that set the wrestling world on fire, probably in a way that nobody had done since the Monday Night War. You're and right. I am not exaggerating no, you're, when you're I not. say that. Because I was trying to think just of what you're saying. I'm trying to think, okay, give me like the what are the big moments along the way? And for me, this is definitely, if we're talking about, you know, we're in 2020, the November, recording this right now, and we're talking about a show that happened in July of 2011. So in this decade, no doubt about it, there are two things that I can really think of This and Daniel Bryan leading up to WrestleMania 30 that were seemingly Hot where you had An organic non WWE created wrestler Somebody who came in to this company That wasn't supposed to make it And made it on their own not because of what WWE did in fact it was in spite Of what WWE did They still made it to the top So I mean I can't Yeah be, before Punk I mean, there are moments here and there, right? You have like things that were cool, you know, WrestleMania where you get the Rock Hogan, you know, in that match. That's cool, and and stuff that happened as, as you mentioned, like maybe here or there, the the rise of Cena, big Orton moments along the way. But as far as something that people in the mainstream knew knew what was going on, this was a huge deal. And what makes this, you're right, it's a polarizing event to talk about because I can remember the lead up to this and how hot and just the energy of the event. And just like you said, knowing what we know afterwards, it does leave a little bit of a sour taste in your mouth because they, th- this is something that WWF and Vince have, have done for a while. They have a really good hot angle, they start it well. They get maybe to the middle part of it well But they can't really finish it or conclude it And that's sort of what happened here Uh, But I mean, you're right Andrew This is as big as anything In the wrestling world in the last 20 years And you know what the real Proving point of that is, Gino? We were at the Staples Center A couple of years ago The Rock was filming Stuff for his movie The Rock, while everything is getting set up Around him, hears the crowd Organically chant CM Punk CM Punk CM Punk Three years after CM Punk Leaves the company And his persona non grata The crowd is chanting CM Punk CM Punk CM Punk And Rock Ever the showman Says Eh you know what I'll get him on the phone And the Rock (laughs) Calls CM Punk From the middle of the the ring. ring Now, the story goes, CM Punk did not answer because he was out walking his dog. You cannot make this stuff up as far as timing goes, but it goes to his voicemail and The Rock has the phone in one hand, has the microphone in another and goes, Punk, it's Rock. You're not going to believe this. I'm at the Staples Center and there are 20,000 people chanting your name. He holds the phone up and the entire crowd comes unglued. There is a list of maybe six to eight people in the wrestling industry that are alive today that would get that kind of reaction. Yep. Punk got it and he had been out of the business entirely for three years. That is how masterful this angle was up to this point and shortly thereafter. Then they got to the summer. Fit. That's all and, I can do is that sound effect. Fit. Yeah, and, and what's actually really crazy to think about too, Andrew, is like 
this was really organic in that he didn't get booked like some monster. No, he took a lot of losses leading up to this. He wasn't even someone that you would have looked around and and he was towards the middle to the top. But he was always when you when he was in a main event type feud, he was losing always. And yeah. and so it was it was interesting because it was he didn't he was not coming off the heels of winning a rum. It, it wasn't like he had some big thing. With a shot in the arm This kind of all came out of nowhere It really came out because in real life His contract was getting ready to to, to Run out and they sort of Just said okay We'll kind of let you do what you've always wanted I, I honestly think to be Part of me thinks that Vince was Kind of saying you think you're so Hot I'm going to give you what you've always Wanted I'm going to give you the chance to do This and it's not going to be a big deal and I think Vince was probably surprised I, that, A part of me actually Thinks that he he almost wanted him to do this and fail, and then he could just kind of let him walk away and say, "Look, you're not as big a deal as you thought." And then he realized, "Oh crap!" I, I don't know. Maybe that's not at all. Maybe they knew this was going to be awesome, but it just the the lead up to it was so weird because he wasn't stacking wins before this, or there wasn't like a ton of build for for a guy who had and the opposite. He it always felt like he was getting buried. It felt like he would he'd get a little bit of momentum. And then they'd pull the rug out for him He'd do the straight edge society stuff He had the good stuff when the ECW Paul Heyman would get a push And then they would. They, then he would get squashed He would be in a title feud And then he got hurt And then they give the title to somebody else eh, Money in the bank, they take it away I mean, it was just a really hot, cold situation and, uh, and it reminds me a lot of the Daniel Bryan stuff Because they don't do it often But when when they do And when you can get someone like this Who's organically over and then you can put all the machine of the WWE behind them for the whatever it is just a month three weeks building up a match like this that's when it becomes pretty magical yeah uh this is the stuff you can't book this is something where punk got six minutes of mic time on a monday night raw cut the pipe bomb promo and the world went crazy I wish I could say that in a more sophisticated way no but that's what happened leading it up is. to this pay-per-view now Here's a question for you. Say this happens nine years later. Imagine if the specter of all of this is, oh my goodness, what if CM Punk is going to all elite wrestling? Right. How yeah. much bigger would that be if it happens now? You're and right. You know, you, you know what? I think WWE should recycle it. They, Jim they, Cornette they, says the life cycle of a wrestling fan where you can start recycling storylines is seven years. It's been nine. There are internet darlings in WWE that would absolutely get this over. Can you imagine if they manufactured a storyline where Kevin Owens' contract was He'd up be the and he was guy. getting feeders? Yep. Like you get you get guys like that, guys that are in the upper mid card that the fans love, that the fans don't think are getting a fair shake. I mean, for goodness sakes, do it with Ricochet. He'd be, See what happens there. There yeah. are guys that you could put on that list. And it sort of shocks me that they haven't done that. But that goes back to our point where maybe it was just something you couldn't write. Maybe it was just this confluence of events where Punk's contract is up. He's frustrated. He's outspoken. For better or for worse, he has a very high opinion of himself. And sometimes that's a very good thing. And sometimes that's a very bad thing, neither here nor there. His contract is coming due, leading up to money in the bank in his hometown of Chicago. You, there's some parts of this you can write. There's some parts of this you can't. And that's what sold the main event of this show. 
But as much as we're talking about CM Punk, the rest of this card, with one glaring exception, is excellent. You get really a couple good. of really good money really in the bank good. ladder matches. Yeah. Christian and Orton both bring it. There's a good power match with Mark Henry and yeah. Big Show. A couple of really good promos. Uh, th- this is a cool show, and I'm really happy we were able to rewatch it. I'm sorry Darren couldn't be with us. Hopefully everything is okay there, and hopefully we can welcome him back next week with a show that I'm really looking forward to proposing because I think that's another one we're going to have a lot of fun with. Yeah, so it's just uh, the cool thing about this Money in the Bank pay-per-view is there's no fluff like whatsoever. You no, know, it's it's not and it's nice. It's like a nice tidy 2:45. It's right around like 2 hours 45 minutes. I think it's 2:47 overall and there's one the women's match is is awful. This is right and there's some really cringeworthy comments that I'm sure we'll get uh-huh. to. Oh my goodness. Um which feels like wow, this is 2011. This isn't 1955. You know, it's like whoa. Uh, other than that, five minutes. The rest of the show, there is another one where it's like, no bad, no bad, and we get things kicked off. And the uh, the you know the video package is a lot about, and and this whole show is a lot build up about the main event and it's punk. And what makes this even more is it's punk in Chicago, the Chicago made punk. In Chicago, a crowd, a home field advantage, so to speak, unlike. Really anything that we can really remember in in wrestling There have been hot crowds that have been very one-sided But as far as being in someone's home And that crowd being on top and the the angle and everything This was just a perfect storm completely And we get the uh, John uh, Vince McMahon If John Cena loses, you're fired And Michael Cole (laughs) welcomes us to the Allstate Arena With Booker T, Jerry the King Lawler I gotta say, this was like my least favorite version of Michael Cole. I will, I I defend Michael Cole quite a bit because I we you know as being someone in broadcasting and stuff, being the head guy, especially being I can imagine being the head guy with someone like Vince in your ear with all the advertising and all the other the bells and whistles that that Michael Cole has to deal with. He he very rarely gets to just sit back and call a match. But if you want to hear how Michael Cole is when he calls a match, go back and listen to and watch The Beast in the East and some of the specials that WWE's done on the network where you can tell he's not being produced and he actually gets to call the moves and set things up. I've always given him credit. This version of him, the heel Cole who who loves Miz, which is really funny because I love Miz. This is all. This is bad. You, I, I never like it when they have the lead announcer be a heel. They should be a straight. If you want to have a three team, or you want to have the commentary guy be heel, but I I just hate the dynamic when they they did it once or twice with Jr. And it stunk. I never liked it with Cole either. Me neither. Now I'm going to tackle a couple of different points here. First of all. Anytime you point out your unadulterated love for The Miz, I am going to point out that this is largely (laughs) due to the fact that you interviewed The Miz once on TVG. I have no idea how you managed to clear that with TVG higher-ups, but it happened. They let it happen. There is YouTube video out there somewhere. It is glorious. Now, here's my problem. I don't even necessarily have an issue with a play-by-play guy Occasionally siding with a heel Or pointing things out That's one thing Michael Cole has no right To call anyone a nerd A nerd, a dork Ever, yeah. ever And that is not necessarily a shot at Cole But the guy is five foot ten. 
when he broke into the business, he was 130 pounds soaking wet. He could have made weight for a steeplechase race uh, somewhere in the Mid-Atlantic circuit. He bloats himself up. He's significantly larger now and not a lot of it's muscle. The guy has no business to be calling people (laughs) nerds and geeks and dorks and whatnot. When in the words of Howard Cosell, he never played the game. It comes across really forced. And that's when you can tell someone is is in his ear producing him. I'm thrilled that you mentioned some of the stuff that he did when there's nobody in his ear because he's very good when he's allowed to be himself. When he's allowed to be a broadcaster and be himself, he's excellent. When he's on interviews and being himself, he's excellent. Really good. He did did a lot of stuff with NXT when Kevin Owens was on his way up. Mm -hmm. They farmed him out to do a couple of interview pieces that were like five minutes. And he actually gets to be a journalist. He does make it feel bigger too, you know, because with the with how long he's been around, like when they bring if they when you bring him into something and he's got the big like the big match feel, I I, I like yeah I, I have no problem and I actually have heard really positive things about because he he probably won't be announcing very much anymore. He's sort of been trying to transition out of that role for a while. He's in fact like the head of the announcers backstage and I've heard really positive things about how he works with a lot of them and gives them a lot of feedback and he's very he you know he's very good with with helping a lot of the, the them and I think he wants to be into more of like a producing role. Yep. Now my other issue with this team is Booker T had just returned to WWE earlier that year. He made the surprise return at the Royal Rumble. He ran in And bonus points if you know who technically eliminated him, because this is an all-time obscure trivia question. Gosh, I it is random, and I know because I I know we we it wasn't long ago that I watched it, but it's not forty man one, I think. Yeah, and it's not Cody because he has the Cody feud starting after, right? It's not it's it's someone less obvious than that. I'll, I'll I'll save you the trouble. Mason Ryan. There you go. Yeah. Some yeah. just rando. Yeah. Yep. Big guy who could move. Everybody drink. We miss you, Darren. <laughs> now, the problem here is Booker on commentary or as part of a panel, I have no strong feelings for or against him. He was trying to find his footing mm-hmm. in a really big way, especially early. He sort of works into a groove as the show goes on. But the first Money in the Bank match was not his finest moment. Specifically, he was trying to talk up everybody and how everybody was his pick to win. I think he goes back and forth four or five times on that. It's just, it's incredibly distracting. Having said that, if you want a really good opener, you get it here. Yes. And that might be surprising because there are a lot of young guys in this match that are not what you would necessarily think of as quote-unquote over. No, they're not proven at all either in WWE. Yeah. What that did was you didn't know who was going to win. Yeah. Daniel Bryan was not Daniel Bryan yet. No. If you look at the list here, yeah, Daniel Bryan's the obvious standout, but at the time, they put Sheamus and Kane in there for star power because the other guys just weren't all that over yet. And Wade, and Wade Barrett felt like the, the favorite because he had had that little Nexus run where he was the main guy in Nexus. He had a couple main event matches against Cena and Orton towards the end of 2010 into 2011. And he felt like heel 
Who was just kind of in the main event level And has been dropped back down Like the, the perfect guy that they give the briefcase to Exactly who they would be looking to give it to Like you mentioned they throw Seamus And Kane in there to give him a little star power And then you've got Sin Cara Who is brand new You've got Cody who's Mid card he's you know Broke away from legacy but he's in, he's More of like an IC title level Guy and he never really was all that over To be honest fine worker but he, he Didn't really find his footing he's definitely not the Cody we know now Slater and And Gabriel were tag guys And Daniel Bryan was like lower Mid card I did forget though that The crowd was really into him here and this was You know this is a smart crowd because they're CM Punk fans but this is Like you said you got Nexus and core guy Daniel Bryan super under the radar Cody's wearing the protective mask We've got Kane without his mask And you mentioned how Cole keeps calling Daniel Bryan a nerd throughout Seen Cara pretty new pretty hot at the moment And uh, Andrew um, This is a great Great opening match You get Daniel Bryan with uh, The head first suicide dive through the ropes Gabriel goes flying Slater goes flying They do a cool spot where like, you get four different guys All doing a high spot right off the bat um, seen Cara tosses Daniel Bryan That was cool And then then this When I think about money in the bank spots This one always sticks into me Sheamus He has a ladder set up From the, the ring To in the announce table On the outside of the ring And he powerbombs Seen Cara Through this thing Andrew And he just absolutely Destroys him And JR would say he is broken in half yeah, um, it's a really intense spot. Here's the problem. It hurts Sin Cara, and Sheamus knew it. He yeah. knew it the second Sin Cara landed. It wound up being a shoulder injury of some sort. And the original Sin Cara, for those who do not know, was Mystico in Mexico. Mm-hmm. He was Triple H's first big, young signing. They did all of these promo packages for him. He came in... And he had the worst luck imaginable. Yeah. Now, he was doing a lot of really fancy stuff. He was botching moves in some instances. But there were times where he had, if, if he didn't have bad luck, he'd have no luck at all. This was one of those instances because a few minutes before, he gets a Spanish fly on Daniel Bryan Incredible. when no one was doing that at the time. No one. And so he gets that move, gets his offense, then Seamus power bombs him through a ladder. And you can tell the ladder is sort of gimmicked to give because there's a marking on the side, but it's still a steel ladder. It's still a 250 pound guy power bombing a 200 pound guy from way up on the apron down to the floor. Did I mention through a freaking ladder? It was nasty. It was yeah. nasty. And, and it's just like, there are some things that the original Mystic, the original Sin Cara, who was Mystico and is now Caristico, can be blamed for. Apparently, he is not the best influence backstage. This wasn't one of them. No. This was a freak accident. And if you read Seamus's body language, he knew Sin Cara was hurt the second he hit the ground. That's sort of uncomfortable, and it's one of the few bad spots on what is otherwise an excellent match. The one thing I do want to mention before you move on to the second part of the match is the reason I loved this match 
It's a ladder match with no slow climbs. Yep. No manufactured grabbing at the briefcase. Like nope. all of a sudden you don't know how to unhook it. We get fighting at the top, which is fine. I'm totally fine yeah. with, with guys, three or four multiple ladders and you're at the top, but you're not giving me this like, oh, my hands are on it, but I can't grab it. Or I have right. to climb five more steps. Battling at the top is fine. I agree with yeah. you. You, yeah, and, this, and I and I yeah. guarantee you, it's because you've got guy, you know, you've got someone like Daniel Bryan in here. He doesn't do a lot of the stupid stuff. You know what I mean? Nope. Like he's sort of like a Bret Hart worker in that they're like they say things like, "Nah, that doesn't really make sense. Let's just do it a different way." Yeah, and there are some ring generals in here. Bryan mm-hmm. being one of them. Kane had been around forever, sure. and for a big guy, he had been in a lot of these matches at this point. You get a guy like Sheamus who always had a good head on his shoulders. And then you get young guys that could do the high spots. Guys like Justin Gabriel, guys like Sin Cara, unfortunately. Heath Slater did a couple of really cool things. This was a really, really fun match. Some of these guys had history together. Barrett, Slater, and Gabriel were all part of the original Nexus. And there was one spot right after Sin Cara got hurt where Barrett sort of tried to reunite part of the Nexus and it doesn't work. Like he tries to get them together and then they start talking strategy and he sprints up the ladder. It's a cool, yeah. cool series of spots. I love that there were no slow climbs. That is a pet peeve of mine. And we'll talk about that a little more in the other money in the bank match, which was structured completely differently. Another which I really love. cool thing. Yeah, yeah. You didn't get two matches with the same stipulation that felt the same. They took pains to differentiate the matches. And in both instances, I think it worked. Feel like everybody really got got their time here. We see the uh, the medical staff for the first time of many throughout the night. The medical yeah. staff was very popular, which was unfortunate. Uh, they were they were out quite a bit. A few times real, a few times that were a part of the the story. Um, yeah, Cody Crossroads out of nowhere. We get um, a kind of a cool spot where Daniel Bryan just ends up on Sheamus's shoulders, and Kane comes off the top with the Doomsday, and they get the LOD chance. Um, and uh, at Early on, we get some crowd chants for Daniel Bryan, which was really cool. Booker says, I gave Daniel Bryan the nickname D Bry. Okay, first of all, like, come on, right? Like, you had to go real difficult to come up with this name. That's just, I mean, I was G Buck in high school for the same freaking reason, right? Wait, like, what? Yeah, I, I was G Buck for a little while, you know? Yeah. Well, guess G- what? You're, you're G Buck now. There we go. <laughs> so that that was hilarious. And then, I love the back and forth here with Cole and Booker So Cole says Yeah of course you like uh, Daniel Bryan You guys are are both nerds You were both in the band in high school And Booker says You were a cheerleader And Cole responds Yeah but I was a male cheerleader What's wrong with that Which I thought was it was pretty funny Because he was really quick on it too And it must be an inside joke with them Because there was a little bit of a silence after that and then Lawler, of all people, has to get them back on track talking about the action, which it's just, you know, you'll never see that again. Um, yeah, Kane, cool chokeslam uh, spot into a ladder. Daniel Ryan and Wade go after Kane. Gabriel hits a 450 on a, off a ladder in, like, the tightest window ever, which was just really, really crazy cool spot. And um, even at the end, Daniel Bryan's got a guillotine on Cody, and Cody and Wade and D. Bry are kind of all, you know, fighting. And Cody, um, D. Bry is able to fight Cody off, and then fight Wade off. He grabs the briefcase. Awesome match. 
Initially Michael Cole gives pissed off But then he does give Daniel Bryan credit afterwards And we get the Daniel Bryan chance So yeah Andrew I mean Very good opener Excellent money in the bank match The the winner And it's funny for some of the same reasons that What we know about the money in the bank Main event match here going forward Leaves a little bit of a bad taste in your mouth This money in the bank match Feels cooler knowing what happens With Daniel Bryan in the years to come It does for a lot of reasons This was a great match You can argue it's the best WWE match Some of these guys had In their WWE careers Yeah Here's the problem This match was reflective of a lot of guys Who had a lot of potential And didn't reach it For one reason or another Sin Cara had everything bad happen to him Wade Barrett was just never seen As anything more than an upper mid-card guy I think he could have been far more than that. His oh, yeah. bad news Barrett character was, was a highlight. Was There's no awesome. way around it. Yep. Justin Gabriel, tremendous worker, just needed a mouthpiece. Yep. Keith Slater was best known for saying, I got kids. And that one promo probably bought him another two or three years on the it roster did. Did. before he wound up having to get cut. Cody, we all know he's he left WWE, went off doing his own thing. Now one of the bigger stars over at AEW. Daniel Bryan obviously capitalized. You look at WrestleMania 30. That's great. The other guys didn't get that shot. It's a, that's extremes. a little disappointing. No, you're right. It is but extremes. There are things you can look at with a lot of these guys. It might not have happened in WWE, but they've done a lot of cool stuff elsewhere. Justin Gabriel is better known as PJ Black today. He had one of my all-time favorite Lucha Underground moments when he and Jack Evans teamed up in a nunchucks match. And Lucha Underground is just ridiculous enough to where Jack Evans looking at PJ Black and saying, PJ, get the nunchucks! And then both of them doing air guitar works. If you haven't seen that match, go find it. It is fantastic, and you will be laughing your head off. So we see footage of Vince uh, backstage. He's arriving in a limo with John Laronitis, his right-hand man, and a random attorney. And uh, they said that they've been trying to come to a last-minute contract agreement with CM Punk. And then, you can look, but you can't touch. Here come the Bellas. It's uh, Brie Bella versus Kelly Kelly. And this was when... The Bellas were were really going with the the twin magic. We're going to look well, exactly. Well, they could have still done that at the yeah. time. Yeah, and f- f- you can figure out why they couldn't do that a couple of years later. Yeah, yeah, uh, you're right, absolutely. So they they looked very similar at this point, and it was actually Bree getting the title match against Kelly Kelly. So yeah, these are some a couple cringeworthy comments from Jerry the King Lawler. Oh. Now, which it's crazy. So what it's was it like 20 I can't in as far as my the timing in my head I can't is it 20 like 15 when was the the real like women's revolution 2016 how long has it been now in that yeah, era? like right around there right yeah yeah so we're talking about two or three years at least before we're getting the the pages in and even even before they really like given Natalia you know legitimate opportunities and matches and we're not, you know, before the Charlottes and Sasha's and Bailey's are in, you know, and Becky's are in uh, in NXT. So, I mean, the, this was just showed you how what they thought of the the women's wrestling at that time. Jerry the King, when the Bellas come out, says, "Quote: These girls are so naughty, they deserve a good spanking." 
yikes, this is 2011. Like, this is just what? Like, I forgot that he was still extending it this far. Um, and he says, just look over at me and wink, and I'll do the rest. And, and then out come Kelly Kelly and Eve. King says, these two girls have more curves than a racetrack. So we've just got some brutally cringeworthy comments before this match even starts. And then the match isn't good. Let's be honest. The these Kelly Kelly improved a lot throughout her time, and she did what she needed to get by in a lot of spots. And then the Bellas get a hell of a lot better after this. And when you know they they become very competent and, and have some really solid matches in different spots here and there. This is not one of them. I mean, we get Kelly Kelly with a slap, a tackle, a really slow swinging head scissors. She's at least. Got a little fight and spirit to her Aggressive early on Bree tosses Kelly outside Then Bree's in charge for a little bit And there were a couple really funny Times that And when I say funny I mean annoying That I just laughed at when I heard Nikki say something At one point after a two count She just goes are you serious And and then Learn how to count ref And then Kelly Kelly gets back in charge She's fired up then King with another eye roller She's a screamer, Jerry says um, And then the finish is It's kind of out of nowhere Like a one move sort of famouser For Kelly Kelly for the win And as the Bellas walk away down the aisle Nikki screams She doesn't even eat How can you not beat that, Bree? Okay So I've got a lot of issues here um, First of all And I've said this with a couple of matches That we've talked about with a bunch of different kinds of workers, okay? When the two most talented workers in this four-person group are at ringside... The two on the outside. Uh-oh. Yeah. Eve yeah. Torres was a very good worker whose yeah. work was underappreciated for the mm-hmm. time she was in because they were doing three-minute eye candy matches. If you had put her into the women's revolution in the mid-2010s, I'm not saying she's Charlotte or anything like that, but she would have fit right in. Yeah, Nikki Bella improved by leaps and bounds mm-hmm. from when she came in until when she stepped away. She had a match with Ronda Rousey at Evolution where she kept up, and that's not easy to do. Now, Brie never did anything for me as far as a worker. You had mentioned the Bella Twins improving. I think one improved far more significantly than the other. That's very, very accurate. I agree, and yeah. I also the whole Brie mode thing. There was never any rhyme or reason behind that. It was something that was said on a very bad TV show. Where they were like getting drunk. This has legs. Let's (laughs) run with it. Kelly Kelly. uh, I mean, the, the, the most remarkable thing they say about her as she's coming to the ring is they talk about a maxim spread, you know, and it's look, she's a gorgeous woman. Fine. But once the bell rings, there's nothing there at all. Now, you mentioned the Lawler lines, and there is just horrible acting on the part of everyone for five minutes. Not just the people in the ring, the people on broadcasting, too. You mentioned Lawler. A couple of those lines, I literally have the words listed, good Lord, make this stop. I know. Because this was beyond uncomfortable. Like, the thing with Lawler back in the Attitude Era when he was going, oh, puppies, ah! 
it fit with the product. Yeah, there, there, it did. It did. There, there was a it was a more raucous time. There were brawn panty matches going on. It would have been hard to not be a little bit like that one you're calling that product. Right now, ten years later, Lawler is ten years older, and it's like the creep that hangs out it at is. the high school looking for senior right, girls right, to give booze right. to. Exactly. So. It's just the worst thing to have to sit through, especially given the times that we're in right now, nine years later. Thank goodness WWE evolved with their women's wrestling product to where that's taken seriously now because, look, there were times in the Attitude Era, like every red-blooded American male, where I loved what I was seeing on my television screen. And then I grew up. Yep. Thankfully, WWE, in this case... Grew up as well. Uh, This was just horrible. I mean, these were women who were not recruited to WWE because of what they could do between the ropes. This was by far the worst match of of the night. Not even remotely close. Everything else, match wise, ranges from fun to match of the year. Yeah, this was uh, like on the Meltzer scale, you can make an argument that this is negative stars worthy. That's how bad. this is. And at least it doesn't go more than five minutes. Yeah, that's that's all we can say. One thing before we move on, Nikki's shouting at Brie. Look at her. She doesn't even eat. When you could lose both Bella twins behind a lamp post Which is, at that This point. is like the stuff that we, we, it was on one of the shows that we talked about where they would make fun of Mickey James, you know, yeah. the, the lake hole, you know, they would make fun of Licky James, Mickey James for being fat and ugly and call her a pig. And it's like, what is it? This is like a weird world where, okay, so, so Nikki and Bree are supposed to be big. Yeah. That's what they're saying here. Like, yeah, it's just, uh, it's. It's the George Carlin line. It's all bullshit and it's bad for you. If yeah. you feel the need to watch this show, and we both recommend that you do, skip this match. It's just not necessary. It really, no. It's really not. And It's not we, even so bad. It's good. It's just awful. Yeah, and we give WWEF, whenever we're watching shows, a lot of crap for things that we go, man, look, when this was good, or some of these shows that we pick out and things were so great. This is one thing that we will always forever say. I mean, what they do with their women is really good right now on yep. all levels. On all levels, a lot of times the women's stuff is some of the most entertaining stuff on the show. Sasha and Bailey have had a pretty good run that started off a little shaky and then got got good and then some back and forth. Oscar's a nice mainstay. They're finally kind of getting Shayna and Nia a little bit of personality and getting them a little bit. So they and and then it's not even mentioning NXT and everything great they've got going down there. They've got. Girls like Bianca and Rhea Ripley, you know, waiting. And this Io is all Yoshirai. This is all while Becky is out right now, who was and the biggest Charlotte star too. in a while. And Charlotte is out. So a, a plot in that when we watch this and flash forward a decade later and see the strides and that the women can main event matches and it doesn't feel weird. And in fact, sometimes I I would prefer a good women's match if it's got a little more story than uh then they they've done a great job with that. So we'll give them a we'll, we'll you know critique when critique be needed, but definitely give them due on on that because uh, they've definitely come a long way he, there. And I I like this next match quite a bit. I was a big fan of this feud at this time. What's really cool about this show to Andrew is there's at least a few people throughout the show that are in major major matches that 
or or in the middle of the best runs of their entire life. And maybe CM Punk's run after this, he's got some great moments when he comes back after the stuff and he's the champ for a while, but this is his apex, no doubt about it. This is the moment of CM Punk's life to it here. The big this is all built around him. This is the the biggest run of Mark Henry's career. Where he was awesome And this is the best run of Christian's career As a single star So we've got three big matches Where three of these guys are actually Really peaking what I think makes this show Even a little bit better We got this good rivalry between Big Show and Mark Henry These two guys are close friends So it always makes things a little bit better When it's your buddy Because they they make it a little more seriously Maybe they take it a little farther They're just more comfortable with each other overall We get the, the package The video package for the build up With the, the good matches that these guys have had back and forth and you know this is the Hall of Pain stuff Where it, Henry is You know he's announced and he's coming down the aisle And he is heel Mark Henry here He fakes like he's going to go after a fan When he's walking down to the ring And just a quick start These two big guys go right at it Andrew Big Show with the flying shoulder tackle Cole's reading through their measurements Which I kind of I kind of like when you when you have really big guys He's go, just Showing how large they are Big Show attacks Henry outside the ring Tosses him into the steps Then Mark Henry gains the advantage He starts working on Big Show's knee So that's a point throughout the match that he's working on Big Show goes off the second rope with the tackle But he ends up hurting his knee He goes for a choke slam But then Mark Henry goes for the knee uh, Kicks the knee and Big Show can't complete the uh, the choke slam Then a a world's strongest slam For two Another world's, world's strongest slam Two splashes from Mark Henry And relatively clean You know Big Show's selling an injury But it's quick and it's not slow at all That's what I like about this If if they go 12 minutes here We're going to get a lot of these guys in rest holds And slowing things down and, and trying to wear each other out Instead Andrew we don't get that We get two big men that go at it They go quick This is And this is great because it adds a little impact For Mark Henry This thing is 6 minutes clean and and then the the post match beatdown, Mark Henry, you know, puts the chair in. He tries to injure Big Show's leg. I loved everything about this. The word that I think you're searching for here is the one I put down: urgency. Yeah. These guys are working with a pep in their step. You can tell they love working with each other. You can tell they're good friends. They did a table for three with Kane, by the way, a couple of years ago. That if you haven't seen it. Go watch it. It's probably my favorite table for three that anybody had ever done. Mark Henry tells the story about the time he flew to the wrong Springfield. Uh, He went to Springfield, Massachusetts, and he was supposed to go to Springfield, Illinois, or maybe it was the other way around. I don't know. But there are some really good stories. And Big Show talks about how organically strong Mark Henry is. And they tell the story of in a locker room where one of the lockers got stuck shut the go-to move was always do what you can to pry part of the door open and then call Mark Henry and have him <laughs> the door off his hinges. <laughs> Good to have a guy like that around for certain situations. Makes you wonder how much he charges to come in when, you know, you lock your keys in the car. Uh, <laughs> now, people forget this, but Big Show, and I'm not even going to sarcastically use the big guy who can move trope. When he wants to, he can fly around. Yeah. He comes off the middle rope here. And this is not 1995, 1996 giant throwing drop kicks. This is a guy in 2011 that's pushing 40 and doesn't have to leave his feet if he doesn't want to. He did everything possible 
to get Mark Henry's push off on the right track here. Mission accomplished. I really like the stuff after the match where Henry went and pilmanized Big Show's ankle. The thing that I went back and watched a couple of times is Henry comes crashing down with this Vader bomb type thing on the chair. Well, if you look, his hand barely grazes the chair on the way down. The ring is mic'd up, so you hear something hitting the chair and the chair ricocheting off and Big Show sells the heck out of it. The word that I use for that, and it's really strange because Mark Henry's six foot two, better part of 400 pounds. That was graceful. That was a sense of knowing exactly what to do, where to be, and how to do that because if he's off by six inches one way, it looks horrible. If he's off by six inches the other way, Big Show can't walk for six months. That was really cool. I loved every bit of this. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe I've got his runs mixed up. This was Hall of Pain, Mark Henry, wasn't it? Yeah, this was was starting. That was cool. That was really cool. because This was great. This is his best run. He's starting right here. He's off and running. And you're you're absolutely right. Big Show does a great job getting him over. He does it. I mean, it. They and then I, I even like the little where they try to bring out the stretcher, but it, they can't put Big Show on a stretcher, so they need the cart like in the NFL, you know, yep. when they when they have to wheel some away. It's just a little thing. And like you said, the thing with the chair, it's funny. It's sometimes a certain run for a certain talent is either, you know, de- like you said with Sin Cara, it's either destined to be great or destined to be a failure. Before it even starts and it's the little things Like what happens with the chair here and there Where you walk backstage and you go Wow that was a, about six minutes Of seven minutes of like Pretty pretty damn perfect you know Yeah. And then you have seen Cara who's on the other end Who's like every time he steps into the ring He trips over the rope somebody falls into a spot That's missed and then the poor guy's unlucky It's just this run was Supposed to be good and it was really good And I'm, I'm glad for Mark Henry because He was a guy who was around for a while His whole run and his whole story is really Fascinating you know when he came in and he was The guy who got this big contract but Then he was really kind of didn't Really put the work in and didn't really want To be a wrestler and then he I mean you think about the we're talking about Nation of domination sexual chocolate Guy 13 years later here You know so it just he, he had a great run and this was the start of his really really good run um, Vince McMahon and John Laurinaitis are backstage and Vince says it's a nightmare all week long negotiating Josh Matthews asked if he's uh, re-signed CM Punk and Vince says no That he turned down the most lucrative contract he's ever offered anyone and that CM Punk wouldn't talk to him And Vince blames Cena and says that uh, if CM Punk leaves with the title may God have mercy on John Cena's soul so we get, and you know, I think good episodes of Raw, good pay per views. There's a story, right? The big story. Obviously, it's a main event match, but it's more than that. It's oh, CM Punk is probably going to leave. And what's cool, Andrew, is when they do things right. We all knew what was going to happen. It's predictable when you watch it back. We know it's going to be CM Punk's going to win. He's going to leave. John Cena's going to get fired. They're going to get away to get it all back. And but we we know it's going to happen. And and if you do it right, it's still really good. Yeah, you don't have to overthink anything in order for something to be good. Compare this and the way this story was told with how they brought Kevin Nash back and how they ruined CM Punk. I repeat, a text message to himself. You really don't need a bigger juxtaposition of the way that went down and Punk's career was... It it rebounded somewhat, but it was never quite the same. 
And that was a big part as any as to why he left. He needed to go over Triple H in 2011. Well, he had to be sacrificed to Triple H because Triple H and Kevin Nash needed to do their thing. So, you know, say la vie, I guess. Here we go to the Raw Money in the Bank ladder match. We've got Alberto Del Rio, Evan Bourne, Jack Swagger, Alex Riley, Kofi Kingston, The Miz, and Rey Mysterio. Um, and everyone has a small ladder to start, one that they're using as a weapon. Uh, Miz, who won this thing in 2010. Del Rio is the big favorite heading into this match He's sort of been in the main event picture for a while You've got Rey Mysterio Who, crazy enough, this was actually his first Money in the Bank match And Michael Cole really loves Miz He's selling Miz throughout You've got the past with Alex Riley and Miz Riley was Miz's uh, henchman Jack Swagger is also a former winner here you got Crazy Heel R-Truth Kofi's sort of a Mid-Carter at the time And Evan Bourne has been more of like a tag guy That just Never really get they, they get behind So kind of an interesting hodgepodge But on paper and just where everybody was At the point it did feel like Del Rio was the Was the favorite but it wouldn't have been a shock To see a Miz pull it off Or even someone like Ray you know Kofi they, there, there were at least a few that, that you could Have gone with here uh, we get Mysterio With the head scissors to start it's, He, he uh, knocks Swagger over the top rope uh, Miz and A-Rai are going at it Everybody's using those small ladders so they're not even close to be able to reach the briefcase when they set them up. That's one of the things I, I didn't like. Is use them as weapons. That's fine. But why are you even trying to set them up? That's just, you know, don't don't give me that when when you know you can't get there. Um, Truth goes up and and over. Kofi and Ray each fly off the top. We got Evan Bourne going off the top of a huge ladder, airborne in the aisle, and splashes onto everyone. That was a really cool visual. And uh, he heads up for the case Miz stops him And we got Del Rio knocking them off the ladder Miz with a fall and he screams Looks like he jammed his knee So here come the medics one more time Miz is taken back And at that point the ladder bounces off And hits Del Rio in the back of the head Which is kind of a ooh spot um, Kofi leaps frog a, a cool Kofi spot He leaps frog from the ropes Over Jack Swagger onto the ladder And then he bounces off of a a ladder And when uh, you get the boom drop And at one point all seven that were remaining Were on top of four different ladders All battling around towards the top Kofi was the last one remaining He almost gets it But Swagger stops him Ladder falls, both men crash Here comes Miz He's hobbling back up and, And he climbs the ladder But he just misses Mysterio stops him And then Mysterio is about to grab the case Here comes Del Rio Del Rio actually rips off Ray's mask Both men fall It looks like this was I I think the the ending spot was probably a botch Andrew I don't know if Del Rio was supposed to fall off his ladder Because he got back up real quickly Climbed it and got the briefcase So Alberto Del Rio Gets the win Okay So I liked how they all came out bringing different ladders. I really liked how R-Truth had a little tiny one because he was afraid of heights. That's a really cool thing. And by the way, R-Truth is almost 50 years old. I feel the need to point that out because he is consistently one of the most entertaining people on the WWE roster. And he's almost 50. Now, only three guys in this match have stayed with the company uninterrupted since this match. Truth's one of them. Then you have Kofi. Then you have Miz. Mysterio left for a couple of years. He did Lucha Underground and a couple of other things, and then he came back. 
Alex Riley was seen as a big prospect for a while. Didn't really work out with him. Born, I, I wish they could have done more with him because I really liked watching his stuff at the time. He was the recipient of the greatest RKO in recorded history. And Darren is not here to argue with me. Yeah, on I was going to so say, I you win the argument. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Swagger is, of course, Jake Hager over in AEW. The Swagger character I could take or leave, but there was clearly potential there. Del Rio. Oh, Del Rio. Yeah. Um, so here's the thing. And before we get into this match, what am I missing with Del Rio as far as why I was supposed to care? Well, I know. I, I agree with you. I never, I, I don't, they, they didn't do as great of a job making us care why this guy was such a big deal or why he was supposed to be a big deal. Now, he has some fine matches, some, some good work in the ring, but and no, and knowing what we know about him after backstage, how he is like, personally, all of the you know his uh, behavior, it, they and they gave this guy chance after chance. They brought him back three or four different times. That that stuff with Zeb Coulter they had at one point. Um, he got you know basically the rocket every everywhere he went. They always made him the guy or a top guy, and he's a good looking guy who can go in the ring. He can. He's fine on the mic, but I, don't, I, I agree with you. He's he feels like someone who could come in and, and have a run, but he never he never really did it for me. I mean, it seemed like they were trying to go the Hispanic Ted DiBiase for a while there, mm-hmm. and I could sort of see where they were going, except they didn't let him be the full heel. They let him be the obnoxious guy, thinking he was better than everybody else. But DiBiase had these vignettes that were just priceless, knocking the ball away from a kid, humiliating a young Rob Van Dam in front of his hometown crowd, that sort of thing. There wasn't a lot of character development as far as why I should care. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, the, the guy's got money. He's destiny. Really ni- that was it. Really nice. Yeah, really nice Lamborghini. Good luck. Good worker. Okay. Where's the X factor as far as why I should care? They never presented that in any of his runs, his first run, his second run, whatever. They stuck him in the League of Nations, which was just a dramatic misuse of so many guys. And oh, just and of course, all the stuff with Paige, by the way, thank goodness Paige is still alive. Just saying did not look good for her for a while there. And you can tell that it seems like a big burden is off of her back. But then you get the the stalker thing earlier this week. My goodness, just what the hell is wrong with people? Uh, Anyway, so coming back to this match, we get Michael Cole in suck up mode where he sucks up to Miz like crazy and bashes Alec Riley, who was the former Miz protege, whatever. They set up the small ladder for no reason. And you can tell that the people at ringside are just laughing their butts off because one of them actually says, they're fighting over a ladder that won't reach the briefcase. And I'm not talking they're a couple inches short. I'm talking you would need Vince Carter's vertical leap in order to get to it at this point. To then hang on it. Yeah. Yeah. So there are a couple of really cool spots coming from unsurprising places. Mysterio does this springboard off of a ladder for a run on swagger. That's really cool. Bourne hits that beautiful shooting star press off the biggest ladder. That's the best shooting star press that I have ever seen anybody do. Evan Bourne has it. Yeah. 
And he can still go. He is, of course, Matt Seidel and a lot of uh, other promotions. But he was an AEW. Yeah. He had a little AEW run recently. Like he showed up in one of their battle royals or something. I, I don't know if he he doesn't get like time on their main show. Maybe he does stuff on on you know their Tuesday night show. But yeah, he, he's yeah. all over. Yep. Um, Miz goes down hard on that ladder bump, and I'm not sure if he was legit injured at that point. But Jerry says, look at the knee, look at the knee, look at the knee. I'd really rather not, Jerry. If somebody's dislocated their knee, I don't want to see it. I, I'm understanding I'm more squeamish than anybody else, but the Dak stuff from a couple of months back, don't ever want to see that again. Kevin Ware with Louisville, never yeah. want to see that yeah. again. Oh, boy. So Born and Mysterio keep doing these ridiculous spots where they're leapfrogging guys on both sides of the ladder doing double Rana's off the ladder simultaneously. Kofi leapfrogs Swagger. You mentioned that, but you didn't mention that he got ankle locked while on the ladder. That was a really cool spot, and I thought that was pretty inventive. They did a lot of cool things with the ladders, and that added to the match, but there were some slow climbs and you know feigning dramatics up at the top. They had the thing with all seven guys up there grabbing at the briefcase, and that was fine except it was three or four guys doing the grabbing and the other two going, oh my God, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? When do I fall? When do I fall? So there were some things that really worked. There were some things that just didn't rub me the right way. I prefer the first one. Yeah, I agree. This one is, this one is still really good. Yeah, it's not and bad. You, you mentioned Miz coming back into the match. CM Punk got the biggest pops of the night from the Chicago crowd and it wasn't close. Miz was two. Because he was when here. He came, he came limping back in, the roof came off the place. And, and when, this was, yeah, and this wasn't someone who was a bona fide main eventer at the time. This was the freaking Miz. This was an upper mid card guy who could talk a little bit and who usually got people in the building to see him get his ass kicked. But this is Chicago, one of the bizarro world locations for WWE, where sometimes the heels get cheered. This was one of those instances, and I bought Miz potentially being the guy to get the briefcase at this point. They wound up going a couple of different directions. I don't know if the ending with Del Rio and Mysterio was a botch or not. If it was a botch, they played it off really, really yeah. well. It was a clever way to get Ray out of that because Mysterio is one of those guys that's never needed a title, never needed a briefcase. He's Ray Mysterio. He shows up with his mask. He sells merchandise. He does flippy stuff. The crowd loves him, and boom, you're off to the next guy. That I thought was fine. No issue with the, ma with the match itself, except for the whole slow climbing thing and some of those dramatics. I thought those were a little bit overdone, but as it is right now, it's a pretty good match. And the very end, Cole says he is Senor De Niro and El Banco. And Booker T says, You've been thinking of that one for a while, right? Um, yeah, completely agree. First one I thought was better. This one was fine. And I love that they went different with it, too, right? I give them points, like you said early on, for not just rehashing the same spots that they did in the first one, they went in a different direction with this one. And um, and it, and it was good. It was good. Some there were. I think there were more holes that you could find in this than the first one, though. I have very similar thoughts as we move along. So we're starting to get the setup for Randy Orton versus Christian. We actually get the build-up package here. If Randy Orton is DQ'd, he loses the title. And um, so right after this, they have a Josh Matthews backstage interview with the, a Del Rio who takes a shot at Punk. 
um, a little foresight for later in the night, and says the briefcase is just a formality. He should have already been in uh, the title match, and that is his destiny to be the champ. Nothing much, sort of what we were saying, Andrew. Um, and then we'll get to the Orton Christian stuff. In that, it's just okay. It was just sure. You know, you you won the many in the bank. It's your destiny to win. Like you didn't tell me anything. You're not any different than other nondescript guy who's in great shape who can go and who has no personality. Yeah, I mean, there there were times where I really wanted to like the guy. Me too. It's not like he's had bad matches. He had a match at the first Ultima Lucha with the artist that we now know as John Morrison, who was Johnny Mundo at the time. And it's a tremendous 20-minute match. The it's guy got a great one Big Show. Go. A false count anywhere with Big Show, um, where he's he like stacks Big Show underneath the announce table, and he has this weird face turn for a like a, a month or two where he turns face, he wins the title, and then he ends up turning heel because he basically just concusses the hell out of Dolph Ziggler. You know, um, when when Dolph Ziggler gets the title on the brief for his brief money in the bank run. So it's a really weird trajectory too. For um, for Del Rio there But um, yeah th- This Randy Orton Christian feud This was Christian's singles run And this was not long after Edge had retired And so what ended up happening is When Edge retires Christian sort of comes in And he becomes the guy that battles with Del Rio For a little while And then he gets into some some good singles feud Where he's he's going with Randy Orton And this is where Christian sort of turns heel In the middle of this feud Because he can't beat Randy He They have these great matches He keeps asking for one more match One of them he actually does sort of get cheated His foot was under the rope So they, you know, Christian's now going to his lawyer He's got this contract drawn up To where if Randy Orton loses the match By count out or disqualification Christian's going to win the title So um, a different dynamic to the match And this was something that you could tell Andrew When they worked the match They they worked around and, and included the gimmick Which I like And this match wasn't the best of their matches Because it had this gimmick to deal with And not just a clean finish But it was still damn good and I watch these shows back And Christian is another guy who is just really underrated And doesn't always get his fair shake Because people sort of look at him as the Genetti, And he is not a Genetti. Let's just say this If we're talking, like, he's not Edge He didn't have the main event, you know, the intangibles that, that Edge did as a single star But Christian's fine on the mic He's kind of he's pretty funny. He's really snarky, and he worked both well as a heel and a face. And he could damn go. I mean, he pulled that really good match out of Ezekiel Jackson we watched a few months back. And every time he's in the ring, he's really, really solid. Christian isn't excellent at any one thing, but he's really good at yep. a lot of yep. different things. And with his style, he can work a good match with pretty much anybody. When Randy Orton is motivated, he is one of the best workers on the planet. The issue with Orton is when he is not motivated, you can tell, and it's an absolute chore to sit through one of his matches. It's feast or famine with him lately. Sometimes you get the greatest match ever with him and Edge that was legitimately great, and then you get the WrestleMania match with him with the last man standing thing, which is a 45-minute death march. In this instance, good Orton showed up. He and Christian had a ton of chemistry, And the first half of this match, I didn't really have anything specific to take notes about because it was just really good across the board. 
Back there was nothing overly remarkable about it. It was two guys that got in a flow really quickly that were on the same page. It was really cool. They did a spot where Orton sort of whiffed on an RKO as if Christian was supposed to be there. And then they worked back around to it so Christian could reverse into a kill switch. I don't know if that was supposed to be a botch or not, but it was a little bit strange. Orton, though, a couple minutes later, gets this gut-wrench neck-breaker thing. Yeah. And that is, it's gorgeous. It was awesome. I, I have no idea why he doesn't do that more. It's great. Because it's, it's a really safe move, it looks like, because it's just a guy doing a back bump off the shoulders. And it's yeah. a neck-breaker. Now, that's quickly followed by that beautiful power slam that Orton has where he literally mm-hmm. just turns his wrist and a guy flips over him. That was really cool. Now, if there's a problem with this match, and you mentioned it, it's the ending and the way that that comes down. Like, mm-hmm. first of all, Randy Orton and everything that he has put people through and everything that he himself has been through, you're telling me another guy spitting him in the face is what's going to set him off? This yeah. is the guy that would eventually burn down Bray Wyatt's house. He kicked okay? Stephanie McMahon in the head multiple t- like Linda McMahon. He punted her in the head. Yep. Um, so that, that didn't go with me. And then they did the DQ thing because they wanted the feud to continue, but they didn't want Orton to technically get beat. I understand why they did it. They'd sort of written themselves into a corner from a storytelling perspective. I get it from a match quality standpoint. eh. but the really good stuff happens right after the match. So Orton snaps and he tries to RKO Christian through the table. But it doesn't break. He goes back up the ramp. Now, there are rumors out there that say Vince McMahon was going crazy backstage saying, that table needs to break. Hit him again. Hit him again. I don't know if there's truth to that. But halfway up the ramp, Orton turns around. He goes back. He RKO's Christian again. And the table doesn't break. And at this point, if you look close... You can see Orton and Christian sort of stifling laughter because what are you going to do? These are two 230, 240 pound guys coming down onto a table. Either the table's going to break or it's not. Or it's not. <laughs> and in this instance, the table defied the laws of physics twice. It was funny, but at the same time, it still sort of worked for the purpose of the angle because. It almost seems more intense if the table doesn't break. Because Christian, so, like, bounced. He, like, yeah. bounced off the table and then, like, flopped onto the floor. And you're right. It almost looked, like, more painful. And Orton's going nuts. You know, he's going crazy. Just, like you said, and he's almost smirking, like, whoops, sorry, Vince. You know, it's like he's almost telling him, like, you want me to do it again? Kind of a thing. Like, and he's, like, banging into the... Th- that is a good version of Orton. I love, you know, like, the crazy version of Orton and... And I really agree with you about the first part of the match. Like, it's good. It's just, it's good. It's solid. It's basic. There's nothing wrong with it. It's, it's, you could tell that it was getting ready to start to pick up to another level, but they didn't want to go that level because they had this finish and, and they had, you know, they had this finish set up. And like you said, it's, you know, Randy looks like he's getting ready. He did the power slam, like you mentioned, the DDT from the second ropes. He's going in for the kill. And then Christian spits in his mouth <laughs> um, and, and that's what set Orton's off uh, Orton off He starts going crazy Like strikes to the Christian's head And then he kicks him in the balls Low blow 
and Christian wins and then Randy goes crazy. He uh, hits him with the TV monitor and then all the stuff at the announce table with the the RKO and it not breaking multiple times. Teddy Long and the officials come down and uh, I, I thought there was one the one thing I, I thought was funny was uh so as the um, after Randy comes back again and and then he leaves. The officials are helping Christian walk down the aisle And he can like barely Barely move his feet Doesn't know what's going on but he sort of looks around And he grabs his belt From one of the officials and just kind of holds it up I always love when like The Rock did something Similar to that like holding up the IC title After one of those Shamrock matches When he's being stretchered out I I always think it's great when the heels just kind of like Look I won I'm so tough (laughs) As they're uh, As they're just like being Like stretchered out or just helped out In this case so uh, that Good another good Above average really You know on a good show, nothing, nothing bad about that. I mean, the finish we didn't like, but we, it, it, you understand what they're doing and they're trying to elongate this feud a little bit more because they liked what they were seeing with these two guys. They had a ton of chemistry. Yeah. This, now, really, quick, go ahead. Yeah. Before we move on to everything that is Punk Cena, I need to point out one of the quirks on the WWE Network when I'm going through this between Christian Orton and Punk Cena. There is an option to stop the taping and watch in its entirety a Be A Star promo. I have a question. On this kind of a show with WWE Network's user base, is anyone, and I mean anyone, actively searching for a Be A Star promo in the search database? Anyone. That's bizarre. Now, from a PR standpoint, I get why they did that. It's an easy thing to boot up and say, hey, here's everything that we've done. You have to do it somewhere. On this show, though? Eh. Not necessary. No, and it just makes everybody look foolish, especially when the summer of punk started with a promo that included punk getting cut off when he was about to tell a story, a personal story about the BS Star program, so much weird stuff going on there. So the CM Punk's chance start before uh, we get the package, and then we get the video package. It's a good one. A lot of build up here. We, you know, we hear about the CM Punk suspension, which came after his pipe bomb. So basically, he cut the pipe bomb promo. He's the number one contender. He tells John Cena, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to leave with the title. Vince decides to suspend him. Then John Cena convinces Vince, hey, no, the fans want to see this match. He's the real number one contender. Let's let's have this match. You know, you figure out the contract stuff. So they agree on the match. And uh, so Vince is, is mad at Cena also. And there was a really great segment on either the Raw right before, one of the, one of the, the Raws before, the uh, the the pay per view, the Money in the Bank pay per view, where Vince is in the in the ring with CM Punk, and he's going through all the demands of CM Punk that CM Punk has before he'll sign a contract. He talks about how he wants his own uh, ice cream bars and all these things. And this is something that our good friend and uh, someone who's been on this show a couple times, Danny Kovaloff, and I used to do to each other over and over, where we would walk by and and Vin, and CM Punk said, "You have to apologize to me," and you know Vince says. Uh, uh, okay, I'm sorry. You know, he says, "No, you know, you know. Come on, that's you better than that, Vince. Give me an apology." I apologize, you son of a b. 
bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Danny and I used to do that to each other back and forth. That's like one of my favorite Vince-isms. Just this particular... And Punk just lights up like a Christmas tree. He just loves that Vince did it, and he's just laughing. And uh, really great build-up, really great storyline. As, uh, uh, you know, Vince threatens to fire Cena. And here we go. We've got huge CM Punk chants before anyone comes out. The crowd is... Effing when the music hits Here comes Punk, it's clobbering time And you can tell he's sweating This He knows that it's a big moment Like he's not nervous or shaking But there's definitely a little more sweat than normal Because th- he's probably feeling like Wow, this is really what I've wanted My entire life, this is My moment, this is this is As big as Many people's Wrestlemania main events If not bigger you know for for a lot Of them because this was all punk It's Chicago everything here built Around him and what I liked About the way they did this too Andrew was The music stops And then there's like about a minute of silence Before Cena's music hits But it's not silence we're hearing Those CM Punk chants And then the John Cena music hits And the massive boos And these two guys They've got amazing chemistry. The, we talked about Orton and, and you know uh, Christian before us, but and we'll go through the match. I mean, if you were to tell me that these two guys were each other's best opponents, I might not tell you that you're wrong. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where everything lines up. First of all, if anybody out there is in the "Wah, John Cena can't wrestle" camp. Just shut up. Just stop it. I know. Watch this match. Watch the match with Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania. Daniel Bryan at SummerSlam. Umaga. He carried Umaga. He also, I believe, had a watchable match with the great Kali, which is the impersonation of Ric Flair with a broomstick. And the U.S. title open challenge where he's doing it with Sami Zayn and all these guys. And Ambrose, too. Ambrose, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so... Cena played it perfectly. I was never in that and, anti-Cena way. Yeah. You know, I always respected him. I always he, he felt like a big star, and he I mean, he could go. He could. Yep. If you watched him when when more and more of the quote unquote indie guys like the Punks and the Bryans came in, he changed his style. He elevated his game and he added more to his repertoire. He really did. Yeah. Now Cena played it perfectly here. He was not smiley baby face salute the crowd. No. Cena. He walked to the ring, stone-faced, barely played to the crowd. Can we talk for a moment about the John Cena cosplayer in the front row? Because that was fantastic the entire night. He had a couple of signs that he was <laughs> yes. rotating through. Yes. Cena threw him the shirt, but that was it. You got stone-faced John Cena. Okay, I'm the champ. It's go time now. And those two meshed perfectly. And the other little thing that I liked leading up to the match First of all, the entrances took seven minutes and it did not feel it because there was a big fight atmosphere in the oh, crowd yeah. that is sorely the energy. Yeah. yeah. Now, the thing that I liked about this, it was a callback to one of the first things Punk says. I don't hate you. I don't dislike you. I like you a heck of a lot more than others. Punk is outside the ring. He's standing with Ace Steel and Boom Boom Colt Cabana, and he's clapping respectfully as Cena walks out. He's not mocking the guy. He's not doing anything disrespectful. I thought that was a fantastic little wrinkle. Yeah. Because there's retrospect where Punk is the smarmy heel, and he was the smarmy heel in some instances. 
But he wasn't the smarmy heel here because he wasn't fighting his battle with Cena. He was fighting the battle with Vince, with John Laurinaitis, with the lawyers backstage. Cena was just the foot soldier. Yep. And I think that added a really cool layer to this match. Now, you know that you're over and you know you're dealing with something special when regardless of how your character is, everything you do gets booed. Everything. Yeah. Cena grabs a headlock and 15,000 people in Chicago boo (laughs) at the top of their lungs. I think the only thing that Chicago was more unanimous about than their hatred of John Cena was their hatred of Steve Bartman. That (laughs) is how hated John Cena was. Now, there were the signs saying, if Cena loses, we riot. That, of course, a ripoff on when he faced Rob Van Dam at the second ECW one-night stand. But Cena more than holds up his end of the bargain here. The first 10 or 15 minutes, you can tell they're setting the stage to Mm -hmm. go a long time. Feeling it out, yeah. And I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I need to say this. This match may have the best worked sequence of big moves I have ever seen. Punk goes up for a crossbody. Cena rolls into an AA. Punk counters, gets him up in a go to sleep. Cena counters into the STF. It was awesome. Punk rolls through into an Anaconda device. Cena somehow rolls through into an AA. And you can tell the crowd's going, oh shit, Punk might lose. It was awesome. It's a testament to how well this was booked because everything coming through says, oh, Punk's going to win. They'll find a way to fire and rare Cena, whatever. Cena hits the AA after that sequence. And immediately you're thinking, oh shit, Cena's actually going to win. Yeah. And then Punk kicks out and the pop is enormous. That 90 seconds is as entertained as I have ever been. By a pro wrestling match. And it Booker was T perfect. was yeah. too. Because he literally said at that moment. This is one of those matches. That people will remember for the rest of our lives. And I know I'm corny. But I literally get goosebumps when I said that right now. Because yep. it is. it is, You know it is like. That's why I picked this show. Um, because and, and nowadays we love wrestling. And there are things that we get excited about. But there aren't things that. There are very few things that get you. This kind of excited or get you. Feeling this this is what wrestling's supposed to do Get you feeling one way or the other And I wasn't a punk fan Or a Cena fan crazy But I just was this this Everything about this And, and, and the, the energy and then of course These guys in the match and how well they work together Was just incredible And Booker was right This is one that you will remember And and you hit it, you hit it. There were just a few of these These Sequences, the like you said, first ten minutes they're kind of feeling it out. There was one point where um, uh, you know Cena hits a suplex of Punk over the top row. Punk's out on the floor. Cole's talking about the importance of the WWE title, and he says that Jerry's never held it. And you could tell it kind of pissed King off a little bit. <laughs> he was like, "Let's start talking about things uh, right now and not in the past." You know, <laughs> he was like a little bothered by that. Um, Cena's doing a great job. He's banged up. He's selling the knee too, but he's not trying. He's not overselling it. You know, he's kind of trying to. He's selling it while trying to shake it off at the same time. They exchange punches, kicks, double clothesline. Both men down. Punk misses a knee. Then we get a five knuckle shuffle setup. But then Punk kicks Cena in the head and then tosses him suicide dive from Punk. He misses a springboard. Cena with a five knuckle shuffle. Then Punk counters the AA with a kick for the two count. Cena with a gut wrench. He's waiting to set up for an attitude adjustment, but he's he's a step slow. And then Punk 
kicks and then a bulldog Punk springboard clothesline for two Cena with an STF Punk is screaming in the middle of the ring He crawls to the ropes And uh, he's able to get out Then Punk with a kick for two count And then that, uh, the sequence that's coming up I think you mentioned the cross body Cena rolls through, lifts up Punk for an AA Punk counter, sets up for a GTS Cena grabs Punk's leg Rolls through for an STF Just awesome, awesome Sequence, Punk is crawling Cena drags him back to the middle Of the ring, Punk counters I think he gets a Kimura choke in at this point um, And uh, and then Cena's up the AA for two with a great Near fall, Cena misses off the top Rope for two and um, Cena snaps Punk's neck over the top Which is a really cool spot he, He's off the top rope with the big leg Across the back of the neck of Punk both men are just doing everything they can to put the other away. We get the Cena AA for two. Punk kicks out, and Cena is setting up for an AA off the top rope. Punk fights off, and he hits a Hurricane Rana. Um, the the GTS from Punk knocks Cena outside of the ring, and it, it, Cena's got the the uh, the STF locked in. In the middle of the ring And then here come Vince and People Power In fact they actually came out a little bit earlier They were sort of standing outside of the ring Just watching because Punk was outside And he he caught them And then as soon as Cena locks the submission in Vince starts signaling to the To the timekeeper Just like the Montreal screw job He's trying to stop the match And he sends Laronitis to go running To go to the, you know, go stop the match Cena sees what happens He Let's go with the GT of the STF And Cena comes down and he nails Laronitis He walks back over to Vince and he says Vince we're not doing it this way That's not how it's going to happen And Cena turns around He gets back into the ring and he runs right into a GTS for three Punk wins Great look on Punk's face Right after he wins too Like a, oh my god holy shit I can't believe what just happened And Vince has got a great look He's He's like exasperated He almost wants to cry His eyes are closed And then he walks over to the announce table He puts the headset on He says cut Punk's music And he calls out for Alberto And then Del Rio comes running And Punk just nails him with one kick He smiles that big smile And then he hops the barrier We've got some really good uh, Stills of those um, all over where Punk's smiling right after the kick And then he's sitting on the barrier He leaves through the crowd in Chicago Massive CM Punk chance as we go off the air He's the new WWE champion So uh, yeah, just an incredible energy A great last five or six minutes It made sense with Vince coming down A throwback to all the times that Vince has tried to screw somebody out But the, the good guy John Cena won't let it happen And he... He tries to to do the right thing and and he he runs right into it. I mean, there were just a lot of little things that all added up here and and this was great, Andrew. This is like one of my personal favorite and probably one of my I would say Daniel Bryan just the whole Daniel Bryan WrestleMania 30 experience, but when we're talking about like some of my favorite most recent matches, this is definitely up there. The only thing in recent years that I can compare it to from main roster WWE is Daniel Bryan, Kofi Kingston from Kofi mania when Kofi rises up and wins the title. And it's that kind of story where again, a lot of that was organic too. Kofi wasn't supposed to go over. That was supposed to be Mustafa Mm -hmm. Ali's spot. Yep. Now you can say what you will about Mustafa Ali and how much that hurt him, but that was a heck of a run for Kofi Kingston capped off by a heck of a match on a big stage. 
this was better. And that's no slight to Daniel Bryan or to Kofi Kingston or to anybody that's ever been in that kind of storyline. This was magic. This is one of those matches where you can find someone who's not a wrestling fan, explain to them what's going into this in three minutes. Okay, Punk's about to leave. He cut this blistering promo on everybody that nobody had ever heard before. This is his hometown for the WWE title against the standard bearer of the company. The entire administration is against him. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Wrestling is at its best when it is simple Simple. and effective. JR says it all the time, right? Like personal issues, you know, like decided in the ring. That's it. You give me a little backstory and two guys that that we think don't like each other. Or in this case, like you said, it was even more meta in that CM Punk actually does like John Cena. It was more than that. It was he doesn't like the whole idea and everything behind him and everything about Vince and the whole company. And this is much more than John. So, yeah, this was this was really, really good. Yeah, um, this was great. This was probably WWE's main roster match of the decade. Um, it was 2011, so it's a long decade, but mm-hmm. it's I, I can't think of anything on the main roster that would have topped it. There were several NXT matches that from bell to bell came close, but this is a class all its own. This was what helped make CM Punk such a gigantic star that he wasn't Overly hurt by what happened later in the year mm-hmm. He was still one of WWE's main guys Even after all of that He wound up holding the WWE title For more than a year Which and is so t- weird Right, yeah. like this would have been the time To let that go right then, right He's hot, you let him run with it now Instead, they did this weird thing Like you said with Nash They had the weird this uh, another weird thing with Del Rio and him And it took like an extra six or eight months After this for him to finally Get get a run Get the run that he was supposed to And then even when he did have that run And do a lot of great things There were a lot of times where He was having the best match on the show But but John Cena versus Laronitis Was in the main event Or there was something else like that happening So th- to me When I think of CM Punk Initially, instantly I think of this show And this is his crowning achievement And this is his moment And everything that he did and wanted about a storyline he you could tell this was a lot of him it would however much who knows but he put everything he had into this and whatever happened like you said after it stunk and what however you feel personally about cm punk if you like him if you don't this month or so was as good as like comparable to mega power stuff like as good hogan andre like on that level like some of the best wwf to wwe storylines they've ever had it just stinks that the way it, it it and it continued after this. But from the day of the pipe bomb to this day and CM Punk leaving and walking out, man, that was a really, really strong angle. Yeah. And we mentioned it at the top. It resonated with everybody, not just the hardcore wrestling fans that people make fun of. Everybody was talking about this, due in no small part to CM Punk going back to his place in Chicago. Putting the title belt in his refrigerator Snapping a picture And posting it on Twitter Total genius stuff Then either the next night Or maybe the week after They do this tournament Where John Cena faces Rey Mysterio In an Well, Cena was fired initially Right? Casino was fired So then 
in the tournament, the final of that tournament, it was Miz versus Rey Mysterio for the new. So at this point, we're fired Monday Night Raw the next night. Cena's fired. So we've got no Cena. We've got no Punk. We've got no champ. So they do a tournament to try to make sure that there is a champ. It's Miz versus Mysterio in the main event. Mysterio wins. And then, like you were about to say, then Mysterio has to go on when. When Triple H rehires John Cena, and uh, and he and he has to, I think it's a uh, Mysterio versus Cena in that case. Yeah. Yep. And then Cena beats Mysterio, and then Cult of Personality plays for the very first time on mm-hmm. WWE television. For those that had followed Punk for a while, he used that as his entrance music after he signed his WWE contract when he was finishing up his Ring of Honor deal. Now. He wound up doing that because people thought it was going to be his last match in the company. He won the title. And then he wound up staying around to work that angle in Ring of Honor that wound up turning a lot of heads. He wound up ultimately dropping the title and having a match with Colt Cabana that made a lot of people cry. And we can't really go the length of this podcast without addressing the fact that CM Punk and Colt Cabana are, of course, no longer friends. They had a big, disgusting legal case first against the WWE and then against each other. Uh, it's it, 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 not exactly a warm, happy, fuzzy story, no. especially given how close they were. They trained together under a steel. Who's also of course at ringside for this match. It's uh, a it's sad story, but for one night punk is at the top of the world. And for good reason, this was really cool. And I would highly recommend rewatching this entire show with the exception of the women's match, which is hot garbage. Which and it's funny because it's a six match show, uh, and there are matches that are twenty four minutes, fifteen, sixteen minutes, twelve, and a 30, 34 minute main event, Punk versus Cena, and the one match that feels the only one match on the show that actually drags or feels like it's long or you want to change it. Is the one that's the shortest and that's not even five minutes And that's the Kelly Kelly versus Brie Bella match And I'm with you I mean we have a A great one of my Favorite money in the bank matches to kick it off We have another really solid Money in the bank match we have a good Big man match at the very start Of Mark Henry's excellent run We've got a Christian Randy Orton Match that is good and continues on Their really good feud and we've got one of the better one of the best main events in the history of WWF, and that's not hyperbole. We're, we're not saying I'm not saying that. If you think about the greatest matches in WWF WWE history, this is probably on the top ten list for mo- a lot of people. And it was a big, big deal. This is one of the best main events they've they've done. This is one of the better shows, honestly, they've done. And one of my personal favorites. I'm glad we got to watch it. I'm I am a little bummed that Darren wasn't able to talk about it with us, but I'm sure he probably watched back some of it and got to relive on some of the uh, the moments and uh, and memories that we had watching it back. So put a bow on your thoughts on Money in the Bank 2011, Andrew, and then let us know where we're going to be heading next week. Great show. Um, if you have a show where you have six matches and five of them are direct hits. That's a great ratio. Mm-hmm. That's a ratio that not many shows get to. It's an easy watch. It's 245. You mentioned it's a tight 245. There's not a lot of filler segments. Matches don't overstay their welcome. The Punk Cena match is a little more than a half hour. It doesn't feel it. Nope. That's a match that flies by and you don't un- you don't realize it until 45 minutes later, you're looking going, 
wait a minute, it's been 45 minutes? Wow, I have yeah. laundry in the washing machine. This is a problem. Anyway, so both Gino and Darren have been dreading this because the last time it was my turn to pick a show, <laughs> I picked the AWA Team Challenge series, which was unprecedented and wound up leading to one of the coolest things that I have ever been a part of in a podcast world, being able to track down Ralph Strangis and get his thoughts on that 30 years after the fact. I'm going to remember that for a really, really cool. long that time. That was cool. Yeah. Now, I had a couple of things in the hopper for this one. I got to tell you, I was thinking about making Darren watch the Chamber of Horrors match he has referenced a couple of times. <laughs> because it is November and we're coming up on Thanksgiving, I thought about the show where they introduced the gobbledygooker. <laughs> uh, I, yeah. I thought about bash at the beach 2000 which was the nadir of wcw and vince russo booking that's the show where jeff jarrett went out laid down for hogan and they did that bizarre work shoot thing that nobody ever really knows what happened um there were a lot of shows that i thought about the one that i keep coming back to though is one of the most fun shows on the network and I'm not saying that as a train wreck viewer. I'm saying that as a wrestling fan. We're going to do something we have not done. This isn't WCW. This isn't Monday Night Raw. This ain't SmackDown. This ain't even WWE. This, my friends, is ECW. Okay. 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 are going to what was actually my introduction to ECW as a serious wrestling fan, which I say somewhat ironically, because it was a show that came out four and a half years after the promotion closed. We're going to take a look at ECW One Night Stand from 2005. Going back a little bit, I was born in late 1988. So I was 10, 11, 12 years old when ECW was at its apex. And by the time I realized, wait a minute, there's this thing called ECW that WWF and WCW have been stealing people and ideas from, it was pretty much done. I had heard of it, but the only exposure that I had gotten to it had been when Rob Van Dam had his cup of coffee in WWF in 97, I think it was. And in Bill After magazines that I would always read whenever I went to the grocery store. So the first real exposure that I got to ECW was at One Night Stand. Now, there aren't a lot of five-star classic type matches on this show. But from start to finish, with one glaring exception, it's fun. People work their asses off. And it's different. Now, before we go further... And before we close the book on this and move it to next week, there is one hitch. There is one catch. I'd really rather not watch the Benoit Guerrero match. Sure. If I don't have to. We've, we've um, talked about that, especially with the shows you yeah. pick. We don't, we, the, yeah. the, the reason being right. If, if, if our job, if, if this was a job and we were historians and writing a book about history or something like that, you'd have to mention the stuff that went on. We're doing this for fun, right? Yep. We do this for fun. We like to have everybody have a good time thinking about these shows. Even if they're bad shows, we have a lot of fun talking bad about them. When we have to get into the Benoit stuff, it, it changes the vibe. It changes the energy that we yeah. feel. And I don't and like that, it. And I'm, and I'm fine with when, when we come across these shows is deciding if we want 
I think what we've decided is like there was a match or two where he was in a tag match where we right. were able to work around it better because it it's we wouldn't ever be able to do like the rumble that he won or the no, mania never, where he's in never. the main event because it just wouldn't feel I wouldn't enjoy doing those shows. But yeah. I'm with this is a seven match show. It's a ten minute match. It's a good match with Guerrero, but we are fine going around it and then talking about the rest. There's one other thing with that match, and I've never been able to shake it, and it's not Benoit, it's Guerrero. If you watch that match and you look in Guerrero's eyes, there is no way he didn't know he was about to die. There is no way. I remember I, the first time I watched that match, and I'm thinking, something's wrong. Like, th- th- this guy's not here. There's something going on there. And he would ultimately wind up passing away. I think it was if the next year, maybe. But you could tell he sort of knew he was about done. And there's just so much sadness in there. We're going to talk about a really awkward moment that Joey Styles had in the match with Mike Lawson and Masato Tanaka, where he references a suicide dive. And if you know the history of one of the combatants in that match, it's a little awkward, but that's a little different. And we can go into the the situation behind that. There's so much good and there's so much fun. Every time I watch, not the main event, but the lead up to the main event with Sandman coming through the crowd to enter Sandman, then squaring up and pretty much hugging each other before beating the crap out of each other. And then you hear the Blue World Order theme music. The, the, the pre-match stuff is as entertaining as most matches on common shows. It's so well done. And the difference between this version of ECW and WWE's version of ECW that spawned from this, it's night and day. This was so good, and if this WWE, felt real, this felt like yeah. ECW. It did. If, if WWE had let a sanitized version of this ECW live on, I think it would have been successful. They didn't. They tried to make it WWE ECW, and nobody liked it at all whatsoever. But this show, these series of matches, these promos. The enthusiasm that was in this building, it's so much fun. It's the show I kept coming back to when I had a list of six or seven shows in the hopper. And I'm really looking forward to watching it again. We're talking ECW One Night Stand 2005. That's our homework for uh, this week. And we will be back talking that episode uh, that with you next week on the old wrestling rewatch here on That's What G Said. Andrew, give us your plugs. Uh, let us know where we can follow you and what do you got coming up on uh, Champagne and JD this week. Sure. Uh, Twitter is at Andrew Champagne, andrewchampagne.com for most of my written stuff. Got to tell you, there is a lot up in the air right now. I am supposed to go to Las Vegas for Thanksgiving weekend. Do not have any idea if that is happening or not right now. Uh, The governor of Nevada in the time that we have been on with one another has come out with something called Stay at Home 2.0. I have no idea how that's going to affect any travel plans, whatever, but We'll see what happens as far as champagne and JD goes this week. Uh, recap of breeders cup stuff. Uh, hopefully you listen to both Darren and I for the Philly and mare turf and the turf yeah. was pretty darn good for me. Uh, I, I have to tell you if anyone out there can tell me how order of Australia made any sense at <laughs> all whatsoever <laughs> beyond hitting the all button no. and getting hideously lucky. 
I, I would love to hear your explanation. I know there are a couple of people out there that just use that horse on a whim thinking, oh, they wouldn't have shipped the horse halfway across the world if it couldn't run. If there's anything more concrete than that, I'd love to know it because I had the late pick three a couple of times on Saturday and that salvaged my two days. I thought about hitting the all button in that race and singling Monomoy girl on a pick four ticket. That would have been $42. Yep. Had I and done that, I would have paid 500 bucks and change. Oh my goodness. I, I, I was kicking myself for a while after that. And if I didn't even, if I didn't hit the late pick three, a couple of times to turn a catastrophic couple of days into a merely so-so couple of days, it, it would have been bad to be me, but uh, it, it, there's a lot going on still. Obviously, there's still some good quality racing going on the rest of the year. Aqueducts just started up. Delmar's going on. San Anita will be starting up, of course, after Christmas. So still something to look forward to. Still a lot going on and still a lot that I'll be putting out there on my social media channels. But for now, I'm just excited to be able to watch some ECW for next week. Oh, yeah. Me too, buddy. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, DZ, Darren Zocali should be back with us. Next week to talk a little ECW One Night Stand 2005 Thanks a lot man, have a nice one You too man, take it easy Folks, you know where to follow Andrew Champagne On social media, you're going to hear him here on That's What She Said each and every week In some way, shape, or form If it's not Old Wrestling Rewatch I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take advantage of Andrew in some way And, uh, and, make, sure we're, <laughs> and make sure we're talking something So uh, uh, thanks a lot buddy And folks, don't you go anywhere We'll be right back with much more on That's What She Said Hey, big thank you to Andrew for helping out with uh, Money in the Bank 2011. So uh, we didn't get the chance to do a Mandalorian recap this week. Um, honestly, when I do a show that's like almost four hours, if I if if I have to get close to four hours, sometimes it it's it like breaks my uploading. It's I have to split them up. So I decided to, to steer clear and I'll just do double uh, episodes of the Mandalorian next week. Big thank you to Josh for joining us to talk masters. Big thank you to Andrew. These are the kind of shows I love. What we got to talk baseball, basketball, college football. We spoke a little bit about Alex Trebek at the very beginning. Um, the masters NFL Breeders' Cup recap, Stable Duel, Thursday and Friday racing for different racetracks, and then a wrestling rewatch. Uh, this is just a perfect type show uh, for me. Thank you so much, folks. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, share the show all around with your friends, and uh, make sure to, to wish Milo a happy birthday. Happy first birthday to my son, Milo. Can't believe it. Joey Cleveland, take this thing away.